Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss issues through the cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. On this week's show, first up is Denise Ritchie from Stop Demand, and we'll discuss the landscape of prostitution 20 years on from decriminalisation. Has it made things better or worse for society? I then welcome back to Counterculture, Jody Brunning, agribusiness commentator and sociologist, and we'll take a look at the proposed GE and GM policy announcement from National, and we'll see what the implications actually mean. This week, I'm also doing the show from the road, which means I will be with my mate Marty Gibson in person for Media Matters, discussing the roundup of legacy media stories of the week, and then, of course, I'll finish things off with the woke word of the week. It's a busy morning, and I know I'm on the road, but there's always time for some of your feedback. This one is from Libby. Best show ever today, Marie. Oh, thank you, Libby. As I said initially, you're the new improved Kim Hill, in my opinion. Oh, you're far too kind. And you're doing such a great job. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love your interviews, love the way you're polite and let people talk, and love the way that you have that old school lovely tranny on today. Just loved everything that you're doing, and I'm so grateful. Off to donate again. Aroha nui, Libby. Thank you so much, Libby. And wasn't Catherine Truscott amazing? I really, really enjoyed talking to her. She... She was awesome. She was really just so incredible, and she was an absolute gem. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. From Terry, hi, guys. Here in Mangafai, we're getting organised to resist the relationship and sexual health curriculum. I heard on this morning live a lovely trans woman speaking. That's Catherine. And it was around nine this morning. We're looking for people who might be prepared to speak at the meeting. And Terry, I think we've popped you in touch with Catherine on that score. Uh, from the text machine... Pepper Fari Paku, <laughs> a title suggestion for Dear Leader, Jacinda's new book. Oh, that is very funny, very, very funny, Adele. 
also from the text machine. Recently, some public health toilets in Mount Monganui have been replaced with unisex cubicles. Frankly, sorry guys, some boys are just disgusting and pee all over everything. Boy pee stinks like old billy goat. I don't mean to offend, but that's the truth I yearn for women's only lose. Sharon, hey Sharon, I'm the only woman in this house and I can totally get what you're talking about. Absolutely. From Liz, uh, Recounterculture speaking with Catherine on the replay. It was very good. Thank you, Marie. And thank you to Catherine, such a genuine person. I am a practicing Christian and I cannot stand the present destructive government education and health system, which is destroying families worldwide. I personally believe it is intentional. Break down the from break down the families and take control of the communities. I certainly agree with you there, Liz. The families are most certainly under attack. Uh, here's from John. Hey, John. Dear everyone at RCR, I get so thrilled listening to all the shows. It makes my head spin for something to say in gratitude. I never listen live, but podcast replays in the evening. I'm high on you guys. I'm really drawn to Marie and Marty. Oh, Marty loves you too, John. So thank you so much for that. This evening, Marty mentioned the Dark Horse, Genesis and Noble, and I had a personal connection to them too. It recharged a fond memory of that time in my life. I haven't turned on a TV since May 2015, but occasionally I get contaminated by social media. However, you guys have been my herb of redemption. I sincerely thank you for all that you do, and you have given your faithful listeners a medium that's honest and sincere. No need to change a thing. It's mint and it's in its current format. Bless you all. Cheers, John. Oh, thank you so much, John. We really do appreciate that. And yes, I mean, I didn't know Genesis as well as Marty, but I did know him. And, you know, this I uh, have to admit, it's been neat. Marty and I go way back, we're very old friends, and it's been so neat to spend some time, you know, with old friends and having a good old gas about our days back in Gisborne. Keep the feedback coming. We love to hear from you. 2057 is the text machine. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email address if you want to send us an email. Trust me, with the lineup in today's show, there is going to be plenty, I'm sure, that are going to get your fingers tapping. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. The back half of 2021 and the first half of 2022 was my year of discontent on Facebook. I was reeling from what I was seeing happening in our society and I expressed myself the best way that I could. I wrote the following in October 2021, the day after the vaccine mandates were announced. Auckland was still in lockdown, the barn was my analogy for them, and the anti-vax rhetoric was really beginning to ramp up. I wanted to share this as I'm looking to update this or a continuation of this analogy for you next week. Last year I reread George Orwell's classic Animal Farm, a fixture of many high school English curriculums through the 1980s. Yesterday, it all came crashing down on me and how prescient this novel is. The genius of Orwell. I watched how Napoleon Ardern announced the new truth. The rules on the barn are to be changed again. Squealer Robinson placated all those who'd been locked down in the barn. Don't worry, more feed is coming more frequently to a trough near you. Lastly, Snowball Hinari tried to encourage his pen that they needed to follow Napoleon's new rules to get drenched, when in reality he knows they'll be sacrificed and blamed by all locked down in the barn. 
Squealer Robertson has made sure that all the media sheep have grown fat and pliant by feeding in the lushest of pastures, only too happy to bleat in unison. Today's chant, protect the drenched from the undrenched. Meanwhile, the rest of the farm go out and follow the changing rules without question, and when they start dropping in the fields like Boxer and they're carted away, any thoughts of speaking out gets drowned out by the sheep and those locked in the barn, just wanting you all to hurry up and finish the drenching so they can be let out. On the farm, though, there are always those crazy chickens. They cluck around the margin, refusing to get drenched, irritating the pigs and the sheep. Squealer regularly denounces these rogue chickens and tries his best to exile them to the back paddock, away from the lush pastures and the farmyard. So as the pigs repaint the rules on the back of the barn, feed up those locked in the barn, shift the sheep to a lush new pasture, the chickens whose numbers in the back paddock have swelled look on from afar, but also are able to see more clearly what's now happening on neighbouring farms, farms that the pigs have had control of for a longer time. A sickness has swept through these farms. The pigs are confident all will be safe as they are well drenched, and they too have exiled their chickens. But animals both in and out of the barns are dying. The pigs continue to blame the chickens. The moral? You have a choice. Stay locked in your own barn, continue to believe the pigs and the bleating of the sheep, or actually start to listen to the chickens who have the greater perspective of the bigger picture. Because the chickens always come home to roost. Listen next week, and I will do an updated version. I think uh, we have a new little chippy pig in the pig house. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie and my guest this morning is Denise Ritchie, founder of Stop Demand. She's got a legal background and a very sharp mind and is very passionate about the issue of prostitution and the denigration and selling of women in New Zealand. Denise, some of the information you've sent me in preparation for this is eye-opening. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Good morning, Marie, and thanks for having us on. No, it's so good to have you. Firstly, Stop Demand, what is it? Stop Demand was set up in uh, 2003, so that's 20 years ago. Uh, Earlier than that, 10 years uh, prior to that, I had been working in the the global sex trade field. Um, Oddly enough, initially as a a senior, sort of a mature student at law school, and I put together a a dissertation on New Zealand looking at changing its laws so we could prosecute our child sex offenders and pedophiles who were raping children overseas. At that stage, you could only prosecute for uh, crimes that are committed on your territory. So this was called extraterritorial law. And as a result of that, connected with a a well-known international organisation, got on their international board out of Bangkok, and we were focused on uh, child prostitution, trafficking, and then a few years later, with the internet, the proliferation, we got involved in child sex abuse material and the trading of that. Uh, But it was some years later that I thought, There's amazing work being done all around the world on protecting children. But this trade is like any trade, supply and demand. And these children being supplied because there was a demand. I mean, traffickers, for example, they traffic a commodity. I mean, if red socks were in, they'd be trafficking red socks. But body parts of women, 
and children were what were being trafficked as the product. It made me realise that because the trade seemed to be getting worse the longer I was involved with it, that we really hadn't put any energy into looking at demand. So as a result, our stop demand was set up to start looking at the other side of the coin and saying, what is it that uh, is driving demand? What are the attitudes and behaviours? And it has to be said uh, that it is men, primarily men, overwhelmingly men, who are the consumers of women and prostitution in the other trades. So we set up Stop Demand. We do have six platforms. We have three, which is uh, the the trade, uh, my area of expertise, prostitution, pornography and trafficking. Uh, the other three areas, because we're dealing with male attitudes, also addresses rape, including incest, rape and war, and then sexual denigration. Genesis of you know, even men in boardrooms, rugby clubs, telling rape jokes. You know, that's where it starts. And, uh, yeah, so we're a very small group. Um, our budget this year was less than 20000 We don't have any staff. Um, I basically do uh, the work from time to time, and we're run by a board. In terms of demand, since the decriminalisation of prostitution in 2003, mm-hmm. has demand in this country gone up or gone down? Gone up. We would say there's plenty of evidence, albeit anecdotal, that it has gone up because if you normalise something, then there is every chance it uh, will go up. And when I refer to some of the cases, uh, that will become evident. Um, But, Marie, maybe I just would kick off that the reason we wanted to get a bit of energy around this issue uh, just recently, well, this in the last few weeks, is that 20 years ago New Zealand took the step of decriminalising prostitution. And that was, we were one of the first countries in the world to do that. I mean, there have been very model, various models around the world around criminalisation, but New Zealand decided to decriminalise uh, prostitution. And just for listeners, mm. we've seen this with marijuana as well, explain the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation, because there is a very distinct difference. And I think people get the two conflated. Right. With legalisation, there's a lot more regulation around uh, taxes. There's a lot more control over the setting of an industry or a sector, for example. Decriminalisation seems to be a softer approach, but in a way it has a lot more gaps. So in other words, what happened prior to decriminalisation was that women could be charged with uh, a criminal activity. Uh, so could the men because it was criminalised right across the board. And the belief was that if the selling of sex were to be decriminalised, then uh, it would make it safer for women. Now, there's been a number of problems that have arisen out of that because not only when you decriminalise a trade, you won't only decriminalise it for the, the sellers, but also for the buyers for the pimps, for the brothel owners. So this this law, in, in effect, turned pimps, which can include gangs, and turned them into respectable business people. So therein lay another problem. One of the difficulties has been that uh, in the law, part of the law was that police had to have a hands-off approach. So police just can't go into a brothel like they could have before. So that is another huge gap in the existing law if there is uh, if there are uh, behaviors and and crimes being committed in brothels it is very unlikely that those will get to uh, be notified unless a woman or a brothel owner takes that step of doing so so in a way the law has left women a lot more vulnerable um, in many respects we should also point out that the prostitution in New Zealand, really exist across three 
uh, sectors. One is the street. Uh, the other is what's called the managed indoor, which would be like brothels. And the third is private indoor. They're called subs, so they're, they are small owner-operated brothels. It is quite mind-blowing, really, to think in terms of the law that decriminalisation almost has created a completely unregulated wild west mm-hmm. of selling women. And, well, that's and- right. Yes, the comments that have come to us over the years, I think could be, well, we've got some quotes that uh, we put out in our media release a short while ago, but one survivor who has uh, been in the trade, and we don't call it an industry or work, we don't believe it deserves that respectability, so stock demand calls it a a trade, uh, denoting again supply and demand. Um, And this survivor wrote, Decriminalising prostitution has simply strengthened and emboldened misogynistic attitudes amongst New Zealand sex buyers. I believe that for many punters, causing mental discomfort to the girl or woman they buy is necessary for them to truly enjoy the experience. I thought I had a low self-esteem at 17, but prostitution has absolutely destroyed it. And another woman, Sarah, has written of her experiences, and this is available uh, on a website uh, for anybody to read. We can give the details later. But her experiences before and after prostit- uh, decriminalisation, she said prostitution is not a life and not work, definitely not work, paid rape, most definitely. You are not getting the happy hooker narrative that politicians, and in particular New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, want us to, to take on board. So we wanted to put a contrary position forward because we knew that New Zealand Prostitutes Collective were planning a three-day hui of celebration and we thought we need to put forward another narrative and that there was very little for New Zealand to celebrate. I think we need to make it very clear, Marie, at the outset, this has not been anti-sex. Okay, this is not a position about being anti-sex. People need to hear that. We distinguish it from, say, platforms like Tinder that facilitate hookup for parties because those parties both want sex, or if there's more than two. He wants sex, she wants sex. That's their business. Okay, we have no issue over that. But what we are saying is prostitution is a very, very different beast because it's a trade where typically only one party wants sex, and that's the sex buyer. And already that should raise to us a big red flag. And in a day where we're trying to teach people about consent, sexual consent should be enthusiastic. Yes, you will will be pushed to find anyone in prostitution who is giving enthusiastic consent for a sexual experience day in, day out, multiple times a day. So therein lies the problem. And what we're finding is that many of these men, they believe that they've bought the right to inflict on their purchase acts and abuse that survivors tell us that they believe would never be consented to by their wives or their partners or even by Tinder hookups. So they feel that because one woman, interestingly, I heard her being interviewed this uh, last week, she said that when she first got into prostitution and it was illegal before the uh, decriminalisation, she picked up that most of her clients felt embarrassed, right? It was something they knew was against the law and something they shouldn't be doing. But of course, now they've got the government stamp of approval. It is a legally sanctioned act for men 
to go in and just pay for women as they wish and demand any sort of services as they wish. And because there's no recourse for um, if any of these women, particularly those who are working in brothels, were to lay a complaint, and you can read many survivor stories where they were horrifically treated by a client, but of course the brothel doesn't want to risk having the police come round. The girls are told to be quiet about it, suck it up, etc. And there was a story in the Herald uh, a couple of years back where in a Whangarei brothel, interestingly, it was touted as an ethical brothel. A woman who uh, was working on her very first day believed her first, well, I think it was her first client, but on her very first day at the brothel, she believed that she had been raped by the buyer and she even took the case to court and he was acquitted. You know, the law is there to protect women, but women are not being protected. And this is just the indoor sector. You know, don't get us started on the street sector. Uh, because we know, uh, and in our media release, which uh, anyone can find on our website just under news, there's been some terrible, terrible, extreme ends of violence uh, against, uh, we've listed a number of women. Uh, many of them will be names that listeners are familiar with. Bella Tapania, Renee Duckminton, uh, Mallory Manning, Susie Sutherland, a woman who's 24, but she got named suppression to protect her daughter, reading about her mother's murder later on. But these are women, since decriminalisation, who were viciously and variously raped, bashed, set on fire, strangled, mutilated, and repeatedly run over and dumped, and most of those by sex buyers. Now, that law did not protect them. In fact, is a good argument to say is but for the normalisation of allowing those women to be out in the street, this is not victim blaming, but but for that law, but for their sense that it was okay for them to prostitute, those women would most likely still be living today. So there's so much BS in the narrative that's going on. Pre-decriminalisation, mm. one of the assumptions of women entering sex work is mm. uh, generally poverty, drug abuse or drug addiction, yep. the need or the influence of a stronger male person in their life, i.e. partner or parent, that forces mm -hmm. them into that work. Right. With decriminalisation now, where you have a legal barrier to that's been removed, mm -hmm. so there are no consequences if you are arrested, do you believe that some of these women entering sex work have a Pollyanna view of what they're going into, that they've Definitely. been sold this dream through OnlyFans or pornography or social media and that they're going to go in, it's going to be like one of their Tinder hookups and it's all going to be champagne and giggles and they're going to earn a bit of money for it and that's not the reality? Is there, is there that sort of perception or not? Absolutely correct. Look, just while we're talking about that, and I'm hoping that maybe uh, you might get an opportunity to interview Ali Marie Diamond, a wonderful, wonderful woman, a survivor, Kiwi. She set up a survivor grassroots group and it's called Wahini Toa, T-O-A, Rising. Wahini Toa Rise, if, if any listener wanted to look further into the survivors' experiences, she has a survivor stories page. And to read the stories are absolutely heartbreaking. But one of the common, uh, the common themes has been that for young people, they have seen alluring ads and that's how they've got into it they haven't got money they've seen big signs up girls girls makes lots of money you don't need any experience you know blah 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 and it's drawing it in and drawing people in so uh, decriminalization has definitely lured desperate young women and also migrants into the trade. So you're right Marie uh, but on top of that is also uh, fueling the uh, increasing number of 
children and young people because you cannot sell contractually under law. You cannot uh, enter a contract if you're under 18. You're not deemed to be competent enough. That's in keeping with the UN conventions, etc. So that's why prostitution is set at 18 uh, as opposed to age of consent being 16 because, well, we would say if it was set anywhere, it should be way higher. Anyone under 18 is deemed to be in an illegal trade. Now, the normalisation of this trade has reached the, uh, the the sort of bottom rung level whereby Maori wardens would report to us years ago of children in school uniforms, girls in school uniforms being dropped off even by parents in cars sitting waiting and so the girls could go and do a few blowjobs on, on their way to school. Because it's become so normalised and auntie is doing this work and, okay, she's 18, what it's come to now is, is, is the sexual exploitation of children is no longer recognised as a sex crime against a child. It's just become a normal activity, but they're a bit naughty because they're doing it a bit too young. So that's the normalisation of process that decriminalisation has fed into. And more uh, concerning to us would be what is the message that it sends to men and boys? One of the examples that we'll get to later is this uh, fantastic model called the Nordic model. But currently in New Zealand, what our politicians and what our laws have said to guys is there's nothing wrong. You've got the, the stamp of approval by, by our laws. And if you're feeling randy, if you're with a team of blokes one night, you're drunk and you think, let's go and screw a hooker. Who's got a bit of money? Who's got a credit card? And they can just go off and find a woman and and just do what they want to her. That's the sort of messaging we're saying, well, hang on a minute, that is just not teaching dignity and respect and, and working towards gender equity society when you've got guys that have got that attitude. And when you look at some of the, the information that's coming out of schools, uh, like Christchurch Boys School and Christchurch Girls School some years ago, where the girls were saying that they just, um, you know, were feeling, young women today are feeling so overly sexualised by young men and I think this is a law that feeds into that as well. And our feminist colleagues overseas who've taken a different approach over the years have approached me and said, we are baffled, particularly the feminists saying, we cannot understand how so-called feminist politicians in your country even remotely begin to think that this is an acceptable form of behaviour because in most countries now, prostitution is definitely recognised as violence towards women. And my explanation uh, I have is I just think that the the law, New Zealand has a high tolerance and a very low bar when it comes to violence against women. I mean, as we know, Marie, we we sit right at the top in the OECD in our rates of violence against women, domestic violence. And I just see that prostitution sits within that mulo of violence and we have an accommodation of it in a way that other countries do not tolerate it. And you're right. Our criteria in terms of a lot of OECD metrics are awful. Mm. Lowest rates mm. of reading and mathematics, for example, mm. which from my perspective, that poor education could be one of the precursors feeding into young women having to enter into an industry and trade 
that is so detrimental to themselves because they're, you know, they don't see any other options. I mean, all of this mm. is interconnected and this normalization, culturally, mm. we're seeing things move and change here now over the last few years. I think a lot of people are waking up, pink, pink pilling, we're calling it. They're sort of beginning to see things are seriously wrong. But these sorts of things have been going on, as you said, 20 years since the decriminalization of prostitution. And that was hailed as this great moment. I do have a question around the Prostitutes Collective because, of course, you know, their founder has now got a damehood. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So completely adorated by the powers that be. What is their argument? What What are they saying? That How are they believing 20 years on that this is working? I think you have to ask them that. I suspect what they, they're saying is that they have more freedom to report violence to the police than they had prior to decriminalisation. And that may well be true, but, of course, our argument is the violence has to take place to start with. And what we're trying to do is eliminate violence, and what they're trying to do is minimise violence. But once the violence has happened, I mean, the law didn't help any of those, those murdered women, but even more so, the woman is not helping the... I guess it's the toll that's been taken on uh, a lot of women on a day-to-day-to-day-to-day drip-fed basis. You're going to get a few women that are in the NZPC cohort by saying, yes, uh, they think it's a great model. They have fabulous clients. They're all Richard Gere and it's all pretty women, which, of course, is just a narrative. What we would call is just um, cognitive dissonance, you know, that there is a lot of, I guess, yeah, glossing over the realities. It's not a, a happy hooker narrative for the vast majority of women and girls who will admit to being broken. A lot of them were broken before they even came into the into the trade. So where does things like gang culture fit in? And I'm not just talking Māori Polynesian gang here. I'm talking mm-hmm. also Asian organised crime. Wherever there is money to be made, yep. gangs yep. can be found. And I'm assuming that they are prevalent in prostitution as they've always been. They must be making bank on this, surely. Oh, they are. And the police aren't interested uh, in investigating gangs are not on the horizons. And yet we've linked uh, uh, articles that talk about the gangs have been uh, amongst the other laws. The laws are the winners. When we look at winners, I mean, we ironically, are, you know, tongue in cheek are looking at who has stood to benefit from this law. And I can tell you who hasn't. And that's women. As far as the gangs go, uh, Wahini Tara Rising, when they put out a media release, they say that many of their own women that they support have been trafficked as children and they're too afraid to be approaching police because they've got fear of reprisals from their pimps, from gangs, from gang members, from other managers, peers and even their families. So gangs are right under the radar and as are traffickers. Now, prostitutes collective quite rightly don't want trafficking to be conflated with with prostitution itself. And I do have some sympathy for that position. However, traffic only occurs into the sex trade, so they are interconnected whether they like it or not. Now, we know even before decriminalisation that we had gangs uh, well, people trafficked into New Zealand for the sex trade because back in 1999 and 2000, I, I was quite instrumental in bringing this to the attention of some of the media and there were some very high-profile cases. But what we've got now is immigration don't seem to have any political 
will and energy to follow up on gangs. And repeatedly, NZPC says there is no trafficking in New Zealand. Now, really interesting, back in 2009, we had a trafficking trafficking, uh, conference down in Wellington for three days. And, of course, trafficking for immigration basically is around horticulture, fishing, other, other industries. And I've commonly put my hand up and said, well, what about the sex trade? Oh, no, there's no trafficking here. It was a very interesting occasion. A man on the second day came barreling up onto the stage. He introduced himself, Jeremy Bialetti, a barrister in Auckland. He said, I've listened to you on RNZ saying there's no traffic here, and I've come to tell you that's utter BS. I am acting for three trafficked women from the Ukraine. And so this is the kind of swept under the table nobody wants to talk about. So it was interesting, his case, these women, uh, the trafficking gang was a gang from Kiev in the Ukraine. These women had been trafficked, and they were all around the 20th age group at that time. They were trafficked to Israel. They didn't have passports, etc. So they got turfed out of Israel and they got trafficked to New Zealand. This is post-decriminalisation. Because New Zealand, we've removed that whole layer of legality over the sex trade. So New Zealand's a perfect destination for traffickers. So these three women are here. They were all being charged by immigration on passport fraud. He could not get them recognised as uh, trafficking victims. He could not believe that the courts, the judge, that just that was just right under the radar. Since then, in recent years, I've had a woman from a major city here who is a madam. She runs a brothel. She was telling me about the number of other trafficking gangs that are here. A woman, and one of them she mentioned was Brazilians. They've set up trafficking routes from Brazil to New Zealand for the sex trade. Of course, the Asian Asian groups have been here for many, many decades. What she said was the trafficking victims who were being forced to do, say, no condom sex, reduce rape, along with illegals that shouldn't be in the sex industry anyway because section 19 prohibits it they were undercutting them and she said my girls can't make enough profit for me i'm looking at moving my establishment over to australia Uh, but she was not angry about decriminalization she's angry about all the illegals and the traffic people here that are undercutting their their so-called profits so for immigration police ncpc to say oh no we don't have any trafficking issues is just really frustrating I'm sitting here really honestly not knowing what to say because this, like so many of these cultural issues, it goes on behind a veil of secrecy and censorship. No one wants to talk about it. I'm so glad that we're able to talk about it today. I want to start talking about, you've mentioned it several times, the normalisation of things and with a number of this cultural creep that we've seen over the last couple of years, things that now, and I've discuss this endlessly on the transgender issue, things that seem would have been utterly ridiculous even only a few years ago are now trying to be normalised. With prostitution, I want to dive into a bit into pornography because pornography has been around since time immemorial, but the internet has put porn on steroids and it has literally put porn into the pockets of every single little boy that's at high schools. Mm-hmm. I worry, I have two teenage sons. I We mm-hmm. speak very openly about this sort of stuff because I don't want Mama Bear, she don't want any rude surprises. Mm-hmm. But I worry about the free open access to porn for young mm-hmm. men, the message that it's sending to them in terms of good sexual health manners and conduct and how women sh- should be treated. What are your thoughts around that? 
Yeah, look, totally on board there. What I would say is, look, I'd love to have an in-depth discussion on, on pornography, but I've got so much more material on this prostitution, so it would be great if we could do that sort of almost as a separate um, as a separate interview. But what Consider I will say it done, is, Denise. We, okay, we but, can do but, that. Yeah, but what I will say for now is you are right. Pornography has become so, well, apart from it being so mainstream and accessible, it has become so increasingly degrading of women and cruel towards women. And this is what young boys accessing now. And uh, the word I use is corrosive. It has corroded boys and men's connectedness to themselves. And the kind of sex that they are looking for and looking at doing, because it's not a shared giving, it's not reciprocal, a doing to women is often vicious and it's it's cruel and it's certainly not about any desire to pleasure a partner. It's about what they can do and in fact inflicting hurt on someone, it's a little bit like one of the survivors said in prostitution, to get off it really requires men to, to actually hurt person that they are having sex with and belittling so some of the common um, words that we'd use around it is, is it's abusive it's degrading it belittles women it inflicts pain in order to get off and interestingly another case I was involved in recently got a bit of media focus on is the whatsapp group people around the the men around the uh, the jazz brothers because same sort of attitudes these men are, have got a degree of callousness towards women uh, massive narcissism about uh, men's entitlement and so I noticed that increasingly in court cases around rape there'll be mentions of biting pulling hair that was in the jazz brothers these are the Christchurch, the, the Christchurch brothers Hooch, yeah mother mother Hooch, mama Hooch. mama Hooch, yeah the behaviors that are coming out in court cases are 100 percent porn porn driven yep they're emulating what they've seen on porn and this is what a lot of survivors and prostitution are saying is men come in and they do things to us that they've seen in porn they would never do at home and even worse the brothels are frequently streaming live porn into the rooms where the girls are and the buyers are so porn is having a devastating impact on relationships all over but yes I do think while it's, it is relevant to the comments that I've just made here in prostitution it is deserving of a much bigger discussion which I'm, I'm very happy to have. No we can but, certainly dive into that so you're right it sounds yeah. like that that is a much much bigger yeah. discussion on its own so then look, can, let's look at the normalization in terms of yeah. how people transact Okay, and you shared some stuff with me just before we got started that blew my socks off. So, so tell us a little bit more about that. Of course, part of normalising is that there has been approval for sexual services to be advertised. Uh, now, I take my hat off, full respect for the likes of uh, Seek and Trade Me, who refuse to allow uh, ads for sexual services on their platforms, but not so the likes of the Herald NZME. And I'm happy to publicly out them because we have publicly outed them through the media over the years. Uh, and I have personally emailed the CEO and all the board members. So they, if they hear this, it won't come as any surprise. But there was a terrible case, some people might remember, of a, a mother Fijian Indian woman who sold her daughter a thousand times for sex. She was able to advertise her daughter on the Herald, and I can pull up what that ad actually says. She was advertised when she was 14 as being hot, sexy, busty Indian girl aged 18. The Herald facilitated 
the raping of this child. And at no stage after the case, this came out as evidence. We asked for a public apology from the Herald to uh, the to the victim. Of course, they uh, didn't respond to that. But this is an example of the normalisation that beforehand, when it was sort of an embarrassing secretive, oh, we shouldn't really be doing this uh, behaviour, it's now just so out there. And one of the things that really angers me about the Herald in particular is if you go onto their website, um, and I don't really want to give advertising to listeners who might not have wanted to to pursue this in the past, but you can just easily bring up the ads. I can tell you today there are 73 ads for uh, people selling sex services and mostly reducing women to their bus sizes and their age, et cetera, completely reductive of women, nothing respectful about this. But what's worse is that if you were to click on, which Marie, you and I did together, uh, click on uh, one of the ads, it takes you through to a, you can share this with a friend, pass it on by email. And at the very bottom, it actually tells the, the sender that none of, neither the recipients or the receiver's details will be kept. So they've got complete anonymity. So in this case, no doubt, men were seeing this, you know, hot buster girl, uh, flicking uh, the details to their mates, et cetera. You know, that is the trend of how easy it is for people to access the bodies of even those uh, where where there's illegal crimes being committed. And what was really, really, um, I suppose, angered most of us as advocates is that not one of those men, there won't be a thousand men, because a lot of them would have been repeat returning predators, not one of them were followed up, not one of them got charged. So here in Auckland alone, we've got hundreds and hundreds of men who have been normalised to just, yep, if you want it, you can buy it. The Herald Herald will even be a pimp. They'll profit from connecting you because that's what pimping is. You connect the arrangement between a buyer and a seller. And so these men, countless men who paid to rape a thousand times, pimped out 15-year-old girl, did so with impunity. Now, there was another case up north uh, that was more recent four men, three from uh, Northland and one from Auckland, and they received a slap by each had a different judge and they just got home detention. They could have been facing up to 10 years prison. Now, this girl was 15. A family, older family friend had been raping her and he pimped her out. And he, one of the men was 66. So this is a man 51 years older than the girl he paid to violate. And he even received empathy from a judge saying, well, he understands, you know, men have got needs. This is how insidious this behaviour has been endorsing from the courts downwards. Completely unacceptable. Are you familiar with the work of Maggie Oliver in the United Kingdom? No. So she is an ex-police officer and she has been trying to bust open the grooming gangs that have been yes. going on, particularly oh, yes, within yes, yes, immigrant yes. communities uh, in, in the United Kingdom. And uh, I've, I've watched a number of Maggie's interviews over the years, and I, th- I think to myself, gosh, I'm so thankful that that sort of thing is not happening in this country. From what you're just telling me, it's happening, and not only is it happening, but it's been sanctioned and endorsed by those in the powers that be in this country. Exactly. And, you know, the politicians don't want, won't want to revisit this, uh, this law because... It's in their best interest to say, hey, we've got the best, this is what sticks in our throat. It's even touted as the best model to the rest of the world. 
And you've got other researchers coming to New Zealand saying, well, here you've got this amazing model and our country should follow it, et cetera. It's just absolutely astonishing. But, yes, when you've given a damehood to someone who heads it up, and no disrespect to Catherine, you know, the thing about NZPC, you've got to take their hats off. They are a slick machine as far as getting out a sanitised gloss to the to, to whoever their supporters are. Um, but they're a million-dollar taxpayer-funded entity. Let's, let's not forget that. NZPC are now very much along the lines. I actually place them in with the likes of Inside Out and they're all government endorsed, heavily government funded and have got the full might of PR machines and open and loving media in order to get their message across. Whereas someone like you, uh, I mean, when you were going to put this information out in regards to the 20 year anniversary to try and get your message across, what's the uptake like? Yeah, no mainstream media took it up, which is interesting because pretty every much pretty much every other media release, and I don't issue a lot. I want to make sure strategically that we're going to issue a media release on an issue that will get uptake. I would say because we did Ron Briley, we've done the Jazz Brothers, we've done you know all this about the the Herald, all that's taken up by media, and yet no one touched this except the alternative media yourselves and the platform. So I think I can understand also this fatigue. It's like oh. You know, not again. We, you know, we canvassed this 20 years ago. And many of us could say say the same, just put our head up and say, yeah, okay, we lost that one. But the extent of damage has just been just too horrific for women, for us as advocates to feel like we had to let this opportunity go by. Women are continually being abused. It astounds me because I've spoken to a lot of women in regards to the Speak Up for Women movement, also now within transgender entities. Why do women continually fall into these traps again and again and again? It's almost like we are willingly allowing this misogynistic behaviour of men to denigrate, destroy and affect women irreparably and we just fall in. It's it's cyclical. It's really upsetting. I'm finding it really upsetting. Yeah, because it's almost like it's this whole care, she'll be right, bro, this kind of like we won't take it can't be that bad and also we seem to conflate anything to do with sex apart from it has all been calling that as as progressive and what people need to hear is no prostitution our model is not progressive it is permissive it is permissive in that it permits men to do stuff they otherwise wouldn't be doing it permits gangs to proliferate and and use the bodies of girls and women under their control. It permits traffickers to know that they can come here, unlike trafficking to other countries where there is a level of illegality to start with. That's a massive hurdle, but to know they come here. In fact, I was looking just this morning at a website for New Zealand tourism, and it's got a section for where you can find certain businesses, where to find brothels and strip clubs in New Zealand. Now, the countries where this, we'll get to the Nordic model soon, the countries where the buying of sex, that now criminalise sex buying, you see, you would never see ads like this. The Herald would never have run ads like that. That normalisation would be completely obliterated out of society. People would really have to look hard to try and find where they could go to do this this activity. But New Zealand's just got it up on its public websites about this is a a certain praising New Zealand as as a destination. And you look at it and its homepage it's got beautiful scenery, but on it is, hey, here's where you can find brothels and strip clubs, and it lists all the all the cities in New Zealand. That's how normalised it's become. It's mind blowing. So tell me about this Nordic model. 
You've mentioned it a couple of times across the interview. What's that about? What happened in 1999 is that Sweden decided that prostitution was inherently violence against women and they were not going to tolerate it. So their feminist politicians, they decided to uh, look at enacting a law that they saw that so many of the women who were involved in and on the streets and in the sectors were really economically desperate. Others were substance abuse. There were very, very few. There are some, as there are some here with NZPC, that it's not going to impact uh, too greatly. And the corollary I would make, just draw an analogy with, there are some people that quite can, can uh, function very successfully on hard drugs, right? Cocaine, LSD, and then they go off and they're working and they're the vast majority of people cannot. Okay. Now we don't say for those small select few people at the top, let's let's um decriminalize hard drugs. Okay. And it's the same thing what we would argue for a prostitutes collective. There will be a few that will say that they uh haven't been damaged. And and who are we to negate their lived reality if that's if that's what they truly believe? But in doing that, our argument is what you've done by decriminalization is you've throwing everybody else under the bus to get your way, you know. So Sweden said was vast majority of women need to be assisted into better jobs, whatever. We are going, and men don't need to buy sex. I mean, there's plenty of other sex outlets. Bear in mind, most of these men who use go to brothels and they've got wives and partners. So it's not like they're lacking a sexual partner. Um, so they said, right, we're going to stamp this on the head. So they put in place what's called a sex buyer law, and it's known as the Nordic or the Swedish model, whereby the men get fined if they are found seeking out the act of prostitution. That money is then put in a fund that assists women into better education, substance abuse, uh, counselling, et cetera, like that. Now, what was really interesting is that three years before they put this law in place and they were, uh, it was a, a nationwide discussion about it, 20% around 20% of men supported criminalising men who bought sex. But six years after the law, so that was nine years' time, more than 60% of Swedish men supported that law. And I just think in nine short years, the education of men moving from, yes, we've got this entitlement, to no, we haven't, increased 40%. I think that is astonishing. I mean, that's really good news. That's a really good news story. Then Norway followed. Iceland is an even better story. Iceland in 2007 decided it would put in place such a sex buyer law. And they did that with, with the support of 57% of, now I've written that down, I can't be sure it was 57% of men or the public. Three years after that, 2010, they took it a step further and they criminalised Strip clubs, they banned any business that profited from the nudity or part nudity of their employees. So they criminalised strip clubs, not decriminalised. They banned them. They, they banned, banned them. them. Got rid of them in Iceland. There's no, no strip titty, clubs No in titty bars in Iceland. No, 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 no. And this is the first country in the world to do it for gender reasons, for feminist reasons, as opposed to Muslim countries for religious reasons. So it can be done, and you can bring men on board. I mean, the vast majority of men and men that will be your listeners will be decent men, and I'm sure a lot of them have got daughters, wives, and they'll say, actually, men, we can do better. We don't need to behave this way. And so the statistics out of Sweden and Iceland shows really positive moves in the right direction. So since then, the other countries who have uh, adopted this law, 
is eight have been uh, so there was Sweden, Norway, and Iceland were the first three, and Northern Ireland, Canada, France, Ireland, and more recently Israel. So Israel, I just had a look at recently. So if you get caught, even if you aren't in, caught in the act of purchasing, but if you've made steps to purchase, your first fine is the equivalent of close to 800, 900 New Zealand dollars, right? And then it doubles for the second time. And again, that money goes towards assisting women into better paying jobs, et cetera. But what is really important with those countries, particularly uh, Sweden, Nor- Norway and Iceland, Iceland year after year after year, going back, many, many years, has always topped, these Nordic countries top the gender equity scale under the World Economic Forum as being the most gender-respecting, gender-equal nations in the world. And that's something to be aspired to. I mean, they're doing something right. And so the difference that I've often said to people, well, look, here you've got two groups of boys. Say you look at 13, 14-year-old boys in Iceland and Sweden, they grow up knowing there is a bar in their country, you can't pay to, you know, have sex with a young woman. If you do it, you're you're breaking the law, you will be criminalised, right? In New Zealand, quite the reverse, 13 and 14-year-old boys, oh, let's go down and buy a hooker because, you know, government says it's all right. And, and so it's a pity for all those boys also that in Sweden, even if that were to be touted as a proposition, could say, hey, no, we can't do that. It's against the law. In New Zealand, those boys who want to say, no, I don't feel comfortable with that. It doesn't feel right to me, will be lightly jeered by their mates and say, well, don't be so so prudish because, you know, the government, you know, Helen Clark said it was all right and look how big wig she is. And, um, you know, don't get me started on the Labour politicians. So, um, yeah, so, and... Look, it's a rhetorical question. Obviously, we we would want a society like Sweden and Iceland where young men have been raised to respect women. And there are other platforms, as I said, like Tinder, if you want to have an equal sexual experience, et cetera, but not one when you're going to buy and act out all your porn-related fantasies on some woman who probably you're the fourth or fifth or eighth person she's seen that day, wants to vomit, is feeling miserable, but has to be there anyway because she's desperate for the money. Has there anybody in the political sphere that has shown any inkling to be able to want to even read this sort of information as an alternative? No, no, not at the moment. Um, back in 2003, we had the United Party and we even had was the MP for Hamilton East, Diane Yates, and she was very supportive of the Nordic model. Uh, but, you know, people weren't looking at what kind of messages is going to give to men or gangs or advertisers or whatever. They're only interested in what it was going to do for women. And that was under this big, you know, the big sell by NZPC. So right now we haven't, but look, oddly enough, and people will get surprised when I make this statement, this is actually not something that stop demand itself is even pushing right now. And I'll tell you why, Marie, as a barrister and as a lawyer, the last thing we want is a law that is not going to work, a law that won't be enforced. Now, right now, Canada is revisiting their law because their sex by law hasn't been adequately enforced. And so that has set up a route for prostitutes, collectives, advocacy groups to demand that they follow the New Zealand model. And right now, that decision is before the Supreme Court in Canada. 
And I was talking just last week, I sent through our media release to three people in the Attorney General's office in Canada and Toronto because they had done a Zoom meeting with me through COVID saying we're concerned that there's a real push in Canada to, to, to go to your model and we want to hear from you firsthand what, what your views are. So it was a very important Zoom meeting to have with these very th three key people, one of whom uh, wrote their sex by law and would be having to re rewrite the law if it changed. Canada's got the sex by law. It's not working because it's not adequately enforced. And what happened in Sweden is initially the law wasn't being forced to the satisfaction of the, the politicians. What the cops were doing when they were fining men is men would say, could you send our, our, our fine to our work address? And that was happening. And then the feminist politicians got onto it and said, uh-uh, that's not happening. It has to go to their home address. Well, what a fabulous deterrent, huh? that suddenly they get their fines get sent and life might open it. No, you've just got to be smart in your strategy. So when Canada enacted the law, they realised there was going to be a problem with enforcement and a group of Swedish investigators went over to educate the police. But it seems like it hasn't had a, a, a much of a positive impact. So we know our police in New Zealand are so under-resourced, it would fall right to the bottom of the pile. I mean, look, they're lucky to get to ram raids, let alone burglaries, whatever. I've spoken recently to some senior member of the police, and they agree as much as they support what we're trying to do. So it would be a worse law to have believing that we could criminalise sex buyers and it went on under everybody's noses and it wasn't able to be enforced. We are, firstly, we're not mature enough as a country. I say that New Zealand is a very, I describe us to overseas counterparts as a very adolescent country. We're not mature. We need to grow up. We need to see that this law is permissive, not healthy and progressive. For that to happen, and we need to have the law changed at a time where we can bring the vast majority of not only the public, but we get the media on board, we most specifically get politicians on board, the vast majority of them, and also law enforcement, and agreement from everyone at, at, at a very high level in the police. That is not going to happen for years and years. So it's something that we hold out there as an ideal, but we're re realistic. And because our work in Stop Demand is global, I get excited and encouraged when I see the likes of Israel adding their name to the list. But realistically, I don't hold out much hope for New Zealand or Australia. Mm. We, we are right down the pan and we're going to have to go further down the pan, sadly. As a result, we're going to have a lot more damaged people, very sadly. Uh, yeah, New Zealand has got a, an annoying habit of being the last cab off the rank with many things, I'm sure. We had a great chat before we got started. Elsa, before we go, oh, I would yes. like to talk about Elsa. Yes, thank you. Um, so what happened was Elsa was in New Zealand. This is, a, I've given her a pseudonym. She had been working. She was very high level, highly sought after. And she was one in a, a working in, in, in the sex trade, uh, the illegal sex trade then. And she was at some men's boozy, whatever. And she was one as a raffle for men. And part of her prize was being sent over to Sweden. And she arrived in Sweden in 1999. And after she'd kind of been used up by the people who took her over there, she realised she couldn't work because there were no brothels. They'd brought this law in place. She heard me speak many, many years ago in the media on this. And I, I got this heartbreaking email from her. And I was in touch with her again this week. She said, Denise, I would be dead if it wasn't for the Swedish law. She said, it saved me from hell. And she hadn't even realised how broken she was. She sent me this over the weekend. This is going back over 20 years. She said, New Zealand's prostitution model is a horrific 
model. I won't read it all. I'm just making some statements. It's profoundly, prostitution is profoundly, severely damaging. Uh, you, When you're in it, you break, you split from yourself, and it's only when you're healing you come back into your body. Being a sex toilet for men's grotty lust, uh, your womb, your internal organs, your heart, your mind, you are damaged and a hurt mess. She says the Swedish Nordic model, buying sex being illegal, 78% of the population is well enough to say we don't want our daughters, mothers, kids damaged by sick genital-led men. It is not cool. So she's very, very clear. She said it's time New Zealand society grew up past the sickness. This woman was so severely damaged. And she said, but like a lot of women in prostitution, they don't recognize the extent of the damage until they try to leave it and they try to get healing. And one woman, I think it's Chelsea, who you might get to speak to, talked about just waking up, punching through the night. And she shared a place with another woman who was working in an Auckland brothel. And she said she noticed she did that too. She saw her friend would be punching out during the night. It's just just so damaging. But, Marie, before we leave, I'm just wondering, there's just five things that are important in, in if we ever want to change the system, even if we don't quite get to the, the Nordic model. And what research has found, interestingly enough, is most sex buyers are not that committed they're casual buyers. And so what the argument is, is that you've got to wait, find a way to interrupt that casual buyer, interrupt the transaction. And there are four ways of doing that. And we fail on everyone. Increase the effort needed to buy a woman. Increase the inconvenience for buying a woman. Third one is push up price. Fourth is normalise the illegality of it. And five, provide information. We've done that in the tobacco industry. Why can't we do that in the sex industry, Denise? Precisely. Well, we've, you and I have got a lot to talk about, so we're definitely going to get back because I think I would like to talk about porn. I think it's important yeah. that we talk about porn. Good news is, is I have got Ali booked for next week. Fantastic. So, yes, I'm really looking forward to talking to her. And as with any of these topics that we're touching here on Reality Check Radio and here on Counterculture, you're not hearing these conversations anywhere else. So if you are listening to this and you know somebody who is working within this environment, you have concerns, they're not getting the other side of the story please do share these conversations. You're able to share them. When the replays go out, they're shareables. They're easy to, to send out to people. Denise is going to send me a whole bunch of resources, which I'm going to give to our team at inbox at reality check.radio which you can access from there but if there is a website or an initial point of contact Denise for you what is that? It would just be on our website which is www.stopdemand.org there's no nz just .org stopdemand.org um, and there's a contact page on there or it's simply action at stopdemand.org if people want to email us directly great to hear from anybody Thank you very much, Denise, for being so generous with your time this morning. There is still more to come here on Counterculture on Reality Check Radio, so don't disappear, including Woke Word of the Week and, of course, Media Matters with Marty Gibson. You're with Marie, and this is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Denise. Certainly some very powerful points discussed, and I'm so thankful that we have been able to have these important conversations here on RCR. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. 
With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You are with Marie and this is Counter Culture. And my next guest is Jodie Brunning, and it is a huge welcome back to her. She is our RCR's favourite Australian. She has been with us so many times, both with me and with Paul. She's a sociologist. She's got a B-biz and agribusiness as well. That was her first degree, and it's actually the agribusiness that we're back to talk about this time, Jodie. I reached out when the National Party released its policy a few weeks ago, and it's taken us a few weeks to get this conversation off the ground. And they were talking about uh, rolling back legislation from uh, around 2002, which was around the genetic modification and such in our food chain. And I thought to myself, really? And I thought, I need to talk about this. Who do I talk to? And it is you. So welcome, because you know all about this. I thought, I bet Jodie knows about this. And you do. Welcome back. Oh, well, good morning, Marie. Thank you for inviting me on. It's, It's great to be here. Look, you know, I can't, you can't know all of everything there is to know because there's a lot that you don't know because a lot is not reported and a lot is not disclosed, but we try to do our best. Um, we don't see the media reporting as, you know, as we were just discussing that we saw 20 years ago, which is what gave rise to the, you know, the Royal Commission on Genetic Modification and Corngate. There's, there's no investigative journalist that the whole media will, will go to and report on. And I know there's another, you know, another charity. He used to have three journalists line up when he was doing a release on um, on something. And, and today just there, there won't be a single journalist there. So we have this dearth of information on this. So I think this is really important. So yeah. Thank you for looking at this. The National Party have come out and they're looking at back, rolling back legislation that came in in the early 2000s. Now, if you don't remember this, this was what was colloquially known as the media as Corngate. It filled our airways and news cycles for weeks on end. It led to a royal commission. It led to the downfall of the Clark government. It led to Nikki Hager's best-selling book, Seeds of Distrust. And all of a sudden, it's almost like 
it never existed and it went into a memory hole. Firstly, what are they proposing to roll back, Jody, and and why do you think that is? Why are they wanting to do that? What they're, what they're saying is you know, they're declaring on their policy paper, New Zealand's biotech rules are out of date, and then they're harnessing biotech, you know, because they're being sciencey, Marie. They like being sciencey because it's important to be sciencey. But we need to remember that pretty much every time something is genetically engineered or genetically modified, a patent is produced and then we get royalties. So there is a massive financial interest in big biotech. So we know that they there are lots of JVs, lots of joint ventures happening. So this has been a major arm of the, the central government's, you know, emissions work. Um, they that The first thing they're doing is setting up a joint venture because they want to make money from it. And so we also have this problem then, and this was a problem we were able to talk about 20 years ago, which is the ethics of who owns a patent. So if you patent Manuka, who owns that patent? Oh, which iwi owns it? Or does ag research own it? So we, we're not having those bioethics conversations. And in fact, you know, for 20 years since the Royal Commission, the government has basically ignored and failed to abide by a huge proportion of the recommendations. So this is the world that national's entering. We're being sciencey and we're going to tell you that the rules are out of date. And most Kiwis looking at mainstream media, legacy media, will think, oh, yes, the biotech rules are out of date because, hey, the media is telling us and all those genetic engineer scientists that are they're using new tools of genetic modification to alter you know, the genome of of plants and hopefully animals or and maybe you know what else what else do they want to do we're speaking to the scientists that actually they're working for ag research or they're working for the the companies and the associations and the institutions that actually are interested in producing the patents and getting the royalties so we need to think that this being science is actually it's corporatization it's mm. and we could look at it for, from maori's perspective perspective we could say this is just colonization they're mm. looking to own life forms that's what happens when you get a patent you own the life form mm. so and who's driving this from a new zealand perspective is it being i mean are there corporate interests specifically in new zealand that are putting pressure on the opposition to say we want this regulations to be updated in order to help our joint features or cooperative interests in new zealand Look, we know, for example, when the Royal Society engaged about in 2017, the main people they were speaking to were either genetic engineers or people that really didn't understand the ethics and the implications of genetic engineering. Then we've seen recently an article in um, Farmers Weekly, and you just see this sort of you know, middle manager talking about that. But what we sort of see is these these scientists keep failing. They absolutely fail to talk about the implications or the risks with genetic modification. And they fail to talk about what we actually know about genetic modification. So let me quickly first, you know, nationals harnessing biotech plan is. So there's three, three arms of it. The first one is to enter end the effective ban on GE and GM, gene editing and genetic modification in New Zealand. The second biotech plan is to create a dedicated regulator to ensure what they call safe and ethical use of biotechnology. And the third one is to streamline approvals for trials and use and the use of GE, GM biotech. So that's their plan. Now there's some there's some major 
issues with that that their, their plan because firstly they they're putting the regulator inside the Ministry for Business Innovation and Employment. It's the fox in the hen house. MB are not regulators. They are the, the, the Ministry for Business and Innovation. They're also looking at... Well, that itself is unusual. I would have thought that that would sit with MPI. Uh, well, it should really sit with the EPA if the EPA was actually working. True. So, <laughs> so and then when, they, when we talk about streamlining approvals for trials, that is telling you and me that they're saying they're the trials outdoors. So there's not a there's not a single problem with indoor trials in New Zealand. So that's not a problem. So if you're if you're doing working with GE, GM in terms of pharmaceutical development, diabetes drugs, what you, whatever you have, there is no there are no restrictions for indoors. And and so what we have, it's a little bit disingenuous because people will think, oh, you know, New Zealand's kind of a monster and they're terrible. But what I want you to to look at, you know, is the fact that our or consider is that, you know, you've got existing legislation and then you've got that augmented with the local government involvement where local governments have made the precautionary decision to keep GMGE out of the environment. And so what happens throughout the regulatory process is that the gene editing processes trigger regulation. So regulation of technology concerning airlines and chemicals and cars is like normal. You know, we, we take that for granted. So why is a biotechnology that patents a life form any different? Because we have the scalability issue. We have the issue that they're increasing the speed at which they can do CRISPR do, do the do the cutting of the gene you know genes they're they're increasing the speed and the pace and I've interviewed Jack Heineman on that that's on our psgr.org.nz um, website on the under the interviews with scientists really great it's up on YouTube Jack Heineman interview and we're talking about scalability now this is something that those regulators globally are not considering. And so you've got to think about the distance, the area, the volume, over time what happens, and you've got to think about then when human activity intersects, what happens? So will there be drought? Will there be will there be nutrients? Will there be how will those edited organisms, those plants or, or animals re- react? So we've got so much uncertainty and this happens at scale because, it, because what they do is they roll out really quickly. And so if you think about just corn and soy in, in America, <clears throat> the species, the varieties have radically diminished in, in choice and selection. They've lost that choice, the, the, the variety of genes for dealing with like drought, dealing with salt tolerance. They're, they're narrowing the, the plant species varieties that they can pull from. So, so I mean, scale is one of those really big things that we've got to deal with. So what you're essentially talking about is natural evolution versus forced scientific evolution. I know a little bit about the wine industry. So in the wine industry, yeah. they do lots of work by grafting. So traditional forms of plant development. So where you graft and you breed, but you do it within the natural life cycle of of the plant. So you create hardier varieties through using existing varieties. And, And I mean, sheep farmers and cattle farmers have been doing this through selective breeding for years. What you're now talking about is actually breaking it down to a molecular level, scientists getting involved, creating new versions of a plant which has never been seen in the natural environment yeah. 
before yeah. and a huge yeah. butterfly effect. What happens if you introduce a new grass or a corn into yeah. an area and it, especially if it's outside, surely there, there can be cross propagation and, yeah. and things like bees yeah. Horizontal gene transfer. Yep. Yep. All of that. Yeah. So, so, so what I want to say clearly to the public is that our regulation aligns with a recent European court decision. It's been held that newer gene editing techniques require regulation just like the older techniques, because we want to understand. So what happens is that technology moves so quickly, you don't know what the name is. You don't know what's happening. So if we don't don't just overarchingly say, you've got to log your trial, you've got to tell us what you're doing, that means that we've got no idea what happens when something does go wrong. So we don't know what techniques lie around the corner. When this was announced... I was expecting the Labour Party to be about this, the Greens to go apoplectic. I thought that, right, this is going to be announced. They're going to create this huge fuss over what evil people the National Party were against the environment. And it was crickets almost. Why? So you know what path dependency is. Go on, walk us through it. So so path dependency is when you have funding for expertise and you learn expertise, your expertise increases through the decades because you're getting funding to do that kind of scientific work. So right now, the scientists in New Zealand that have been doing biotech know a lot about it and they are going to talk about it and they're going to get the media because there's an increasing amount of them. The government's been, most people don't know that there's been a funding for biotech relating to um, greenhouse gases in New Zealand for 20 years. We've got, an, you know, it's, it's a, a group of different institutions that come together and they, they're they working on greenhouse gases. We don't have, for example, a group of scientists in New Zealand that are funded for 20 years to look at nutrition and mental health or to look at chemicals in water and what mixtures of chemicals do to vertebrates, to New Zealand's Indigenous species. That sort of funding doesn't last for 20 years. You might get, you know, three years or one year. But so so what we have is we have all these scientists that are that are very skilled, in, they're getting increasingly skilled in doing this work and they just want more funding for their work. And because when they speak up, they don't they don't contradict the, the narratives of powerful institutions. So the New Zealand government has been very clear that it, it's supporting this scientific research because it goes back to a late 90s, 2000s, right across the world, but, of course, in the Crown, in the Commonwealth states, and innovation became the new buzzword. And innovation is about developing a product, a process, a service. It's about patenting. It's about getting royalties. That's why biotechnology perfectly harmonises with innovation rhetoric. So this fits in. Do, do you see how biotech is such a part of the system? So you and you look at the big power. Uh, absolutely. Globally. Yeah. No. And, and a good example of that, okay, would be I spoke to Kerry Warsnop several weeks ago, and she is a um, she's a Nuffield scholar. Yeah. We talked about the farting cows. Of course, biotechnology has been harnessed to grow feed to reduce reduce methane emissions when the cows fart. And of course, the whole thing is just a rort because the methane of the farting cows shouldn't actually even be included in the agreement in New Zealand anyway. But there's a whole industry sprung up about creating, you know, fart-free grass. 
Yeah. So this is so this is just one strand, and it's really important that we understand that. So for twenty years, agri, I think ag researchers had about sixty five million dollars to sort of high metabolizable energy. So it's high lipid pasture grass. So this is mainly focused on rye grass and clover. Of course, that that duopoly mixture that we've had, and and we haven't done any research on you know long term research on broader mixtures. It's been this. Du- duopoly because we we kind of like just only think about two things you know labor and national clover and ryegrass but that's hasn't served New Zealand at all and so what we're now understanding of course is that ryegrass isn't really doing well it's not coming out with the you know the the benefits that was envisaged so after this 65 million dollars and you know how nationals really you know they they do their their financial accounting and they're they're the responsible party so if they're saying we're going to deregulate, where is their, their analysis of the $65 million invest, investment on HME rate, ryegrass? Where is it? Where's ryegrass? Where, where's, I'm sorry, ag research's financial cost-benefit accounting from their last 25 years of research into this? So what do farmers think of all of this? I mean, have they been consulted around any of this or have they just been bombarded with a whole bunch of ESG type, you must do this, you must do that. This is what we need to do in order to reach a target. You are the great evil and you must comply to all of these regulations or we'll send the regulator. So that's another issue, right? So the farmers have not been asked. So what part of National's platform is we're cutting red tape for farmers? Farmers are small businesses and they're price takers. And so with the low payouts, for example, in dairy for many years, you know, and you know the up and downs that the um, hort industry have, they are very, very vulnerable. This what we call small businesses and our government's not very good at supporting small businesses over the long term, I don't believe. So National can talk about cutting red tape, which is fine because I believe central government is quite happy to cut red tape and get rid of a lot of the work that central government has to do to monitor all this. And when you look at, for example, a lot of what farmers are being requested to fill out to have sort of intelligent monitoring, it's not worthy, like it's not worth it. You know, um, there are there are distinct issues that we need to address, you know, deaths on farms, rolling farm vehicles, you know, that sort of stuff and harm. And that's really important. But oh, mental health on with farming. Well, yeah, and that, that is a whole another conversation. Whole, I, because we're not talking about nutrition and we're not talking about pesticides exposure. Mm. That's what they're leaving out of the mental health and on farms debate. Well, there's another conversation for us, Jody. It's, it's just incredible. There's so much we can talk about. So National's policy to cut red tape for farms and to, to invest in biotech totally harmonises with central government. So they want this red, dedicated regulator, the MB, which is pathetic. They want to end the effective ban on GE and GM. And they, remember, they, the government has failed to monitor any GE or GM in the environment and the Ruakura trials. We had seeding plants that being properly protected from um, the potential transfer into the environment. We had the harm on the animals. That's all available on the gefree.org.nz website. And now they want to streamline approvals for trials, which tells us that they want to not have to declare all what they're doing. We have a massive problem in the New Zealand EPA with, a, with the commercial and confidence agreements that at every corner prioritises and privileges corporations. And it, and really all it does is it prevents public knowledge on, on what's happening. So we've got National doing all this stuff, but they haven't asked farmers. 
everyone knows is too much red tape for farmers. This is really, really clear. But what we also see, for example, if you talk about nitrogen emissions, this is a big thing. Where have you ever, ever seen across Dairy NZ, across central government, across ag research, across any of the other institutes, you know, even, even coming out of the Fonterra and those guys, the latest knowledge on changing nutrient pasture mixes to maximise productivity? It's not there. Like, so when I talk to my, you know, farmer contact down in the West Coast, right, he's just, he's bored. Balance and Ravens down, the guy comes to them and he's just telling them the same shit that they've been told for 20 years. And he's bored with them. He doesn't want to, he knows they're failing him. And farmers feel the same up here because the government's not funding complex scientific research. So this is open-ended research that goes, okay, this is your region. This is your soil type. How's this mix of pasture species going to work? The slope incline of your paddock. Okay, what's your magnesium? What's your calcium? What's your pH? So there's none of that work going on in New Zealand. Everything we're being advised from like Raven's down and, and, and balance is is not even keeping up. So, so, but what we know is there's a bunch of farmers and they're moving across to what's called the Albrecht method. So they're looking at pH differently. I do believe that the UK is, is ahead of us. I think New Zealand is falling behind. So when it does undertake open-ended research, it's like short. But you can only do it for now and now you have to stop. So remember everybody like who's listening, 56 billion in exports, right? 56 billion in exports from agriculture. The farmers are told they're bad because nitrogen's going off their farm. So when did the government pay for open-ended science to support knowledge to increase productivity while they get rid of synthetic nitrogen? While they use dolomite, for example, with its magnesium to take up, to change the pH, to, to improve the soil and to get a lush pasture. My brother-in-law couldn't do it for years because low payouts, the minute the low payouts have stopped, he's gone and changed. He's gone to this new method and he can't believe it. He doesn't have down cows. Why isn't the government doing this? And why isn't the government supporting farmers to get this sort of soil testing I think part of the problem is, Jodie, is they're not very good at doing more than one thing at one time. And I mean, what you're talking about is, as you said, to improve the quality of the environment, the pasture and the soil, whilst also increasing productivity. I mean, this current lot only seem to be concentrating on one area. Productivity, they're not, I don't think they have any interest whatsoever in productivity. Everything they have announced in the last yeah. five years yeah. goes towards reducing and destroying productivity for farmers. Yeah. And as you prefaced earlier on, you can science farming up to the wazoo, but ultimately the number one thing that will impact and control farming is the weather. You can agree that thing that makes resilience is science. Exa so exactly. But they will only concentrate on the things for it, like the nitrogen, a great example, you know, that yeah. they'll focus solely on that. But they're not looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is so this is what's happening. So farmers know they're being failed left, right, and centre. They know that the DIR, the old research um, institute, was de defunded, disbanded. They know that science is all under the Ministry for Business, Innovation, and Employment, which has no priority for protecting the environment. It's just shown this, and and the Ministry for the Environment is completely gutless when it comes to actually saying we actually need information to support farmers, and then that they will reduce their chemical use it's pretty simple it's really simple so so the only funding package that has been able to do this sort of stuff for years 
has been the SFF Future Fund, the Sustainable Food and Fibres Fund. That was $240 million odd, peaked at $72.78 million. That's the most so that they've ever had one year for this sort of complex research. And, of course, that's right across. So that's hort, that's sheep and beef, that's pasture, that's growing seeds because we export a lot of grass seed, a lot of seeds for um, carrot seeds, grass seeds. $72.78 million was the highest amount ever in one year for this complex science, right? They're exporting $56 billion. But now, look, National's being sciencey because they're talking about deregulating biotech. Well, wouldn't you like to know that the latest economic plan by the government, the climate puts in Climate Emergency Response Fund, a SURF, the initiative, of course, um, Marie, will directly reduce emissions, right? Out of that, which is like $2.9 billion, there is $495 million, $495 million in, in the budget for agricultural emissions reduction. And <laughs> when you look at the government's climate change staff, it's all about nitrogen and it's all about methane. Okay, so just, just go back and compare those numbers again. So $495 million for reduction in emissions. Yep, and I got that off Treasury, the Treasury page. Yeah, from Treasury. What was that number that you had before? And so $495 million is basically over four years, right? Yeah. And then the Sustainable Food and Fibres Future Fund, the SFF Future Fund, was like 200, lucky to get to 240 million, maybe 226 million over a five-year period. That's 2019 to 2024. It's about to stop. And the most they ever got was 72.78 million. So now they're putting in this marvellous, beautiful agricultural emissions reduction, and it's for technology. So, Marie, the minute they put the word technology in there, they're not looking at complex soil systems. So, for example, they're not looking at, I don't think there's much luck that that if scientists in New Zealand um, were putting in a funding budget under that to look at pasture management, carbon sequestration, nutrient uptake to increase stock health for resilience in drought, I don't think that would come under there because there's no technology. Because remember, we were talking about patents and IPs and royalties. Mm -hmm. So under that surf, the first thing they did was set up a big JV. They want to manage all the royalties and patents. It all comes back down to money and power. Yeah. Yeah. You can just see it. And I can't even, in that 495 minute, and I did, I might have yesterday just done an FYI um, OIA request to MB. How is that 495 million being broken down? Who's getting it? Did you it? feel an OIA coming on, Jody? No, I did a big fat one yesterday. <laughs> it's, on, it's, on, it's, it's on FYI. And then I did another one to Damien O'Connor because honestly, I like Damien. I feel like he's forgetting about farmers right now. And Damien's been really staunch. He understands that international food markets do not want GM contaminating our food supply. And we also know that the Productivity Commissioner, right, the Productivity Commissioner came out and said, oh, we need to deregulate biotech. If you look through that consultation, so this is so much to talk about here, Marie, I apologise. If you go back, look at the Productivity Commissioner consultation, all the, I don't know, 80, 120 people that submitted to it, two people submitted that that biotech rules were out of day. And they were the people with one person pharmaceutical and another person that was a, that was related to genetic engineering. Mm. And if you look at all of this, because I'm a farmer's daughter, okay, yes. so I 
know farming. I grew up around farming. I still have people involved in farming. So you, you know farming, both both here and across the ditch. Yeah. When on earth has more government and more regulation ever improved farming? Yeah, so now we're talking about regulation, we're not talking about biotech. Well, even but well, but see, even the thing is, is I think the two of them are intertwined. I think that governments are using biotechnology selectively in order to corral farmers to a direction that they want to go. So, as you were saying, there is some really incredible science that should be done in terms of soil. These yeah. workers there, it's like everything with climate. You know, you hear people say that if they want to get any funding or research. It has to have climate in there as one of the elements in order to see scarcity money and innovation, exactly. And I think what you've just described is the farming version of this, that you have to appear to be going down one pathway to even see a single dollar of research money and grant. And generally, they will only approve if there's some sort of, you know, what's in it for me at the end in the form of a patent or a joint venture. And I know really amazing projects that have been proposed under the Sustainable Futures Fund that have been rejected because they didn't go down the applied science bit enough. Several. So where to from here? For example, if we maintain the status quo with our current group and the latest poll results that came out said that they will only be able to do that if they aligned with Te Māori, what would that look like? Or if there was a change and they flipped across the fence and National did get across the line with ACT along with them, what does that mean? If you're sitting on a farm at home, if one of our listeners is listening to this, are sitting on their farm at home, they're sort of vaguely aware of this but not necessarily completely aware, what are the pros and cons on either side as you see them? I think it's just, you know, red and blue mixed together as purple. Pretty much. So not a lot of difference. doesn't really matter. No. Mm. no. Isn't that frightening? Let's also look at what else MB have done in the last year that make me even more concerned, right? Because so that- MB is the purple really, isn't it? It doesn't really MB- matter who's in charge. Well, it's central MB government. It's lead. central yeah. government leading. Yeah. There, yeah. there is no, nothing in what they're doing contradicts anything that central, any of central government's aims. So what are some of those other things that they're into? Because they obviously, is from what you're saying, doesn't matter who gets in, they will yeah. continue on. Yeah. So the science, I'm so I'm trying to stay on the science system here. Yeah, so on. so MB did a massive big consultation, apparently 800 people, and including PSGR, we we submitted a great one. We said we said we should have stewardship or kaitiakitanga at the very top, so that we can actually choose our science projects based on what New Zealand needs to steward New Zealand into the future. And this includes economic responsibility, but it also includes making sure our our soils and our farmers are actually robust and our farmers actually can be there. We do not want corporate farm mentalities in New Zealand, so we do not want the erosion of of small business and small farming families because that is that that is a healthier environment is when you have small and medium and a very few large corporate farms. That's what makes a greater competitive environment for agriculture. Following MB's consultation last year with 800 people coming in, they've grandly announced there's going to be a Wellington Science City. But when they in, in all the announcements I can see, they don't mention agriculture once. 
So the Wellington Science City is their announcement and it sort of involves an innovation hub and it involves a nutrition hub and it involves a climate change hub. And, of course, it's it's near Wellington. So where do you think the lobbyists all go? What MB are not talking about is the problem of when you have a heap of JVs, when you have a heap of partnerships in in a university, in a Crown Research Institute, you are going to get the pivoting of those institutions to serving and working with those institutions, those those private institutions, so they get more funding. And this is part of the path dependency. And we're not very good at funding institutions that are independent, that are sort of outside, that are away from that. And and it, it doesn't work. You get us. You get us an, an elite because when we can talk about science, scientist elites, that's really common in the scientific literature. So the people that are there that have that they've got the mana, they walk into the room. Everyone says whatever you think, I'll agree with that. You know. So you get the elites that that see some small researcher, you know, drawing attention to you know, the amount of fluoride being emitted from water services because it's now added and who knows what's happening to all the vertebrates from all the fluoride being emitted in wastewater. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want that because I'm working with the person that's, you know, the corporation that's doing pharmaceuticals and fluoride safe and you can't have do that research. And you get all these contradictions that inevitably lead to the less resourced getting out. It's the more resource that stays there because science is expensive. So right now, the idea of Wellington Science City, that is just near Wellington, where all the lobbyists are, sure, the innovation hub will be full of JVs with corporations. Fine, go knock yourself out. But the health and the nutrition, like the health section, shouldn't just be about pharmaceutical agreements and and JVs with the private sector because otherwise we're never going to find out about the chronic disease burden in New Zealand. We're never going to find out about the malnutrition and how malnutrition connects to mental health. So we need to actually be able to completely institutionally separate. This is a big thing I'm saying, by the way, completely separate out the conflicts of financial conflicts of interest so that scientists can be scientists in particular institutions that will serve environmental and human health. That's why environmental and human health has been drip-fed. Simon Upton, the, the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, is well aware of what a cluster beep the whole situation is. So, you know, it would be really interesting to try to get him on. I don't know if he would because he's not a political actor, but if you just talked about the science system, maybe he would talk about the challenges we have. I don't know. Simon, if you're listening, yeah. inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email, my friend. I'll talk to you, my darling. But you're right though, because that's the thing, we need to, there is so much going on behind the background. That Wellington bubble is becoming quite rigid and you enter, you pierce the veil, you enter inside it. I had just had the weekend down there and um, a weekend or two back and it is a completely different world compared to, as I mentioned to last week on the show, I said, I, I really do feel like there are those who are living in Aotearoa and those who are living in New Zealand and neither party are seeing what's going on in the yeah. New Zealand that they're living yeah. in. And that's yeah. actually quite, kind of dangerous because there's good things happening yeah. in both in both nations, yeah. but there's all this politics in the middle that's preventing people from seeing anything. And, and I mean, the MPI, MB, how many of those people have even been on a farm? How many of those people have even 
that, that even understand the challenges that your average farmer have. And so they're, they're so academic. And But it's the same problem in health. They're, they're only going to develop policy, in, and this is the same path dependency that's based on hospital numbers and it's based on um, vaccine take-up. They're not doing any, there's no levels based on the reduction of cro- chronic disease, reduction of diabetes, or, you know, they're not, you know, so the, the, it's very technical. It's become more and more technical. So that's a really big challenge we face. And that's because the science that's open-ended, that's broad and basic, has been defunded for approximately 30 years. One of the most important things people need to understand is when they did that $65 million in the pasture grass research, we just keep going back to biotech, they've never done and a cost-benefit analysis to say that money, that funding was good. Then if you look at greenhouse gas emissions research globally, you are not seeing any cost-benefit analysis to say how much money has been invested in that and how much money is coming out. And importantly, who is the financial beneficiary? Almost the last point because I know we'll need to close up soon. When so the the concept of innovation, so you know, innovation is an important thing, is very connected to GDP. So patents are a proxy for GDP. So then you get government saying, like the New Zealand, New Zealand government is, we need to spend two to three percent of GDP on science. When we look at that two to three percent of GDP, the question is, how much of that investment? And then, and what the government's also doing, and I, I do, I, I respect this, is they're saying for every invest one dollar we invest, we want a corporation to, to invest one dollar. But the minute you get that, of course, you get the conflicts of interest because you get us turning towards what industry wants, not farmers, right? So notice there's a difference. The industry is a middleman. So yes, great. So then PG Wrightson gets to develop a new plantain ryegrass that that might be result in less urine going into groundwater. That's noble and that's a great project. But there's a huge amount of projects that simply won't be funded because the stakeholders aren't are farmers and they're not going to put a dollar in or the stakeholders are you and me and we're not going to put a dollar in. So they need to really scythe off, they need to push away the the science that is going to be duly funded by institutions with financial interests in getting patents and royalties. And so this includes ag research at the moment, noting that in ag research there is also really good work, um, for example, on deferred grazing. I want to say that there's really good work coming out of ag research as well, but we need to understand how hard it is to get, and the deferred grazing work isn't even talking about, isn't really talking about nutrition and isn't looking at long-term benefits because there's no funding for them for that. But there's millions of dollars. There's there's this, wow, the surf, remember, I'll, I'll say this is the last thing for people, Treasury also, this is another thing, Treasury joined with the Ministry for the Environment to do the Climate, Economic and Fiscal Assessment. The IMF and the World Bank are leading climate change investment by government and climate change policy. So now Treasury is involved in producing a fiscal assessment, which is quite a political thing because they're talking about science. And when you talk about science, it is it's actually political. It, there's a lot to throw at people, but we've got the Climate Emergency Respond Fund. We've got $495 million over four years for agricultural emissions reduction, which to me means predominantly looking at methane. And we've got all this other fun, finance, other research required for agriculture that's been completely ignored. I don't think National's going to, they're not 
supporting farmers. You know, the, the red tape stuff is really obvious, but if they were going to really support farmers, they would talk about a massive amount of science and research that is needed to look at regional requirements by industry, in looking at weeds, for example, because we've got a lot of problems with resistance to glyphosate. So what about robotics technologies? I mean, there's so much stuff we could be looking at, but they're simply not. And I also feel that there is a lot of local knowledge that has been discounted in the yep. name of centralised science. Do you get yep. that impression? Exactly. So Dr. Charles Murfield down in Lincoln, he talks about this a lot. When you're producing science in agriculture, you actually have to do it with the farmers because you're you're looking at, you want to do like a three to five year you know, or even a 10-year spread. How is fertility and productivity impacted by these mixes? What happens when we have a flood this year and we have a drought next year? Because we have the seasonal cycles. And so you can't, so this is one of the cunning things that a lot of the, like the pesticides manufacturers do. They show you a six-month trial and they, they come back with the result, you know, that or the insecticides on the seeds. This is a short six to one-year trial. They don't look at what happens over the seasons. Does this impact the insect life, the microbiome of the soil they don't do that work and the fungal the mycorrhizal fungal I know that was incorrectly said platform you know Dr Gwen Greelett is amazing on that sort of information in in land care those long-term questions we must work with farmers regionally on local farms and this is why science with farmers is really different and Murph can talk about that a lot and so this is part of the problem they just want to do that in vitro in laboratory research but once you get out so i think i'm really grateful that ryegrass the ryegrass um, has failed overseas with this lipid metabolizable energy and also the, the concepts of a what happens if things go wrong when they come here why can't we just do trials of long-term trials to understand farm systems here we can't talk about that we can only talk about oh it's terrible we, we won't let biotech mm. biotech research happen here well we're not bloody letting complex systems research happening here because they won't fund it and these are the conversations that are not being had elsewhere now we have done all this time essentially on just that one element and that is what people are not hearing it's not what they're getting there is this bigger picture we've got plenty more to discuss as the future rolls and I think you're right I think we need to be able to have these conversations these announcements, it's the announcements that drive me crazy. The announcements go out with very little backing. And so the general public are just expected to take that information on face value. And I think if there's one thing that we've learned in the last five and a half years, take nothing on face value. Yeah. So Jody, I want to thank you so much. Please just um, give our listeners again. I've been talking to Jody Bronning, those websites that you mentioned before. Jody's going to give me, I'm going to get her to email me a resource list, which I'm going to give to the lovely Liz at, at inbox at realitycheck.radio if you want to get those resources. But uh, you mentioned again, P, it's psgr.org.nz. Yeah, Physicians and Scientists for Global Responsibility. I'm a, a trustee. Of course, speaking today, I'm speaking in my own capacity. I've also got a substack, J.R. Brunning, B-R-U-N-I-N-G dot substack dot com. You know, people can look up the NZAGRC the, for where the greenhouse gas emissions research has been going 
on for a long time. They can look up the Climate Emergency Respond Fund and the New Zealand's 2023 economic plan to understand that that commitment of $2.9 billion. We can all use our um, FYI, make official information Act requests because we we really need to know that we need to support farmers. Fifty six billion in ex- exports this year in agriculture, and and for the last twenty years, this the, the important research has been basically defunded. Mm. Now, poor farmers, honestly. Look, Jody, this has been a treasure. I will be getting Jody back because, as I said, we've got so much to talk about. Thank you so much for highlighting this for us. Uh, you are with Reality Check Radio. I'm Marie. This is Counterculture. There is still more to come including the Wogue Word of the Week. And up next is my partner in crime, Marty Gibson, and we are doing our Media Matters in person. We'll be doing it from the Papadopolis of Papamoa together because I am on the road, so I can't wait for that. So take care and don't disappear. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. It's always great to catch up with Jody here on RCR. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Share them with us via email to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us to 2057. That's 2057. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You are with Marie here on Counterculture, and it's Counterculture on the road, on tour. Live from the Papalopolis. Live from the Papalopolis. Welcome, mate. New Zealand's Florida. Yeah, I know. We're very excited. Very excited. This is really exciting. We're actually doing this together in the same place. We're sitting here. There is a table strewn with newspaper. Yeah. There's a little bit of mixing that we've got to be careful. Yeah, I know. Is that your story? No, that's my story. (laughs) But we've got a lot to talk about, as always. This week, we thought we would kick it off um, with the science in the school curriculum for Level 1. There's contention around this. It gets announced in terms of the science curriculum, and there's great concerns that, of course, uh, things like biology, chemistry, and physics don't even seem to appear in the new Level 1 curriculum for science, let alone a view to what is going to happen in Level 2 and Level 3. Is this a case of your theory, Marty, that they are actually... This is what they intended all along? It's not a bug, it's a feature. Well, the reason, you know, we were sort of talking about what to get into first, the the logical thing to get into first is the not fit for purpose education system because, you know, we're going to be talking about gangs that have been in the news a lot. We're going to be talking about various things that are less likely in a well-educated population that's functionally literate and able to form a cogent argument against crap. I don't know about you, but what I'm seeing with this, there's a huge amount of debate, I have to admit, even for those who are most ardent towards being aligned with the teaching ideologies currently coming out of the ministry, some of them are even starting to go, not so much. Well, I've been really heartened to see that there are some teachers starting to write columns, yeah. This is Dr Andrew Rogers. He's the head of chemistry at St Peter's College in Auckland. I I read read out that quote on... um, on the political panel. Good on him. I'll say it again, good on him for for speaking out. And people are starting to notice their kids' Mm. education being full of stuff that they're scratching their heads about. Yeah. And a lot of it has been replaced. It's, again, where do you draw the line between facts and science and theory? Religion. And religion. There's a new trend for sticking in animist religion into uh, science and then absolutely shouting down and threatening the jobs of anyone who disagrees with you, right? The listener 10, you know, who said that, well, um, Mātauranga Māori oh, yes. is an interesting part of our national heritage. 
but it ain't science. Yeah, it isn't science. So this, I think, is going to be a really interesting debate, and it's going to continue to be a debate, particularly as more and more state schools are opting out of providing level one to their students. They're doing something alternative. Now, the concern with this, of course, is this is now proposed for the curriculum for next year. Will we see this go on the bonfire if there is a change of government, number one? And number two, if they don't put it on the bonfire, if there is a change of government, assuming that National Act and potentially another coalition partner get across the line, how on earth are they going to modify this to make this even useful for our kids? Yeah, I mean, there's a bit there that you, and so this is a good thing about us being live together. Um, I noticed stuff you haven't highlighted <laughs> on this one, which I highlighted, which was of more concern. This is from Andrew Rogers, Dr. Andrew Rogers, the head of chemistry at St. Peter's College in Auckland, chairman of Science Olympia in New Zealand. Of more concern, those who worked on the level one science standards did so without any idea of what the level two or level three programs would look like, as no curriculum existed. Many of the, the experienced classroom specialists with an understanding of international best practice were sidelined or at best managed. I suspect they were seen as difficult to work with because their reasoning didn't support the ministry's narrative. That's horrifying to hear, isn't it? It is horrifying. And having speaking to somebody who's currently embarking in a science career at the moment, that uh, is an adult student, they showed me a paper that they did in their first semester, and it's called Science Sustainability. I was struggling to find any science in it whatsoever. The entire paper was essentially full of ideology. They sent it across to me, and it was all around, I mean, the most sciencey thing in there was uh, vague, re- well, not vague, very overt references to climate change. But from what I can see from the surface, the entire paper, which is compulsory for every single student who is doing a science degree at Massey University to undertake, was essentially an indoctrination propaganda paper. This is this is the ideology in the live in the channel of thinking that we want you to be in in this degree. Deviate from this, and you will fail. And it's only pass fail. It's not even graded. It's mm. only pass fail. And you have to pass it in order to get your science degree. So the person that sent this to me said, look, I think you might be interested in this with what you talk about. And then they followed it up with, please don't let them know who I am because I don't want them, you know. And they literally had to lie through their teeth in the entire paper in order just to get that pass mark to progress forward. Yeah. Is that the level of education that we've come to? I did did one paper towards a uh, master's in counselling and I got told quite a few times, you just got to tell them what what they want to hear. I find as I get older, there's less and less memory space to handle lying and it just is hard enough to arrive at the truth that will guide you through life without fluffing it with bullshit. Mm. Absolutely. So it is quite concerning. So I think it's very much watch the space if you're concerned about what's going on uh, with your kids or stuff that you're seeing in your kids' education. Drop us a line and inbox it at realitycheck.radio and let us know what's going on. We'd love to hear what's happening uh, at your schools. I know that there was an interview, Leighton Smith did an interview with the principal of Rangitoto College. Do you listen yep, to that? I, yep. I caught that. I was listening to Leighton Smith. Yeah, and there were some some of the feedback he received was, oh, he, he didn't go far enough. Well, I actually thought he was exceptionally brave 
talking about the new program, uh, Rangitoto College, for those who aren't aware, is the largest high school in New Zealand. It's massive. And he has now withdrawn from the NCA Level 1 program and they're going their own way, like many schools in Auckland now are. He had to be extremely measured. He is still a principal at a very large school. So, I mean, he has got people within the ministry that will be looking at him very closely. So I thought the fact that he was able to come out on a program like that and discuss it. Yeah, well, really it's, it's important. a pink pill concept where if you yeah. just hit people too hard with too much, they'll just go, man, it's it's, it's our Matrix movie analogy. You know, this might not be a real state, but yeah. I'm happy with it. And, you know, giving back to the guys, uh, the um, head of chemistry at St. Peter's, you know, saying, well, the, the classroom specialists got, and you've people who are science specialists were seen as difficult to work with because their reasoning didn't support the ministry's narrative. Now, it doesn't go on to say that, but in the Herald on Sunday's editorial, they go on to tell you what the ministry's narrative is. And the ministry wants uh, Matauranga Māori, that is the accumulated traditional knowledge of Māori, to sit at the heart of the learning areas. There is nothing wrong with that, but if Matauranga Māori is at the heart, then physics, chemistry, and biology must remain front of mind. I don't know how you can do those two things at the same time. Well, it's an oxymoron, really, isn't it? Putting more on into oxymoron. It is, but I mean, because there's nothing wrong with Mataranga Māori. If you were taking Māori at school as a subject, even if you were taking um, history and the history curriculum and social studies and the social studies curriculum, there's a lot of learning with Mataranga Māori in terms of an essence and a way of being that I think people would find really important, just as those who follow and, and read about Native American culture or any other culture around the world. There are ways of knowing. Maybe that they I need to balance it up by teaching kids that the moon's made out of cheese. <laughs> But not in the science curriculum. Well, you know, at one point it was. It was, yeah. Are we going back to the days where somebody who was actually wanting to advocate for real science will end up like Galileo Galilei and thrown in a tower because, you know, they're putting out there some scientific fact, but that does, you know, that does not fit with the current paradigm of the day. It, it really begs belief. Well, you know, a, a theme of this show is going to be the proclivity of the people pushing all of this stuff to lie. And they lie because I think, well, you know, I mean, that's a that's a very colonizing way to look at, at reality. What we're doing with this is good. So, you know, whether or not it's a lie, whether or not we're crushing dissent and, and whether or not we're paying off the media so they don't give the other side of the story. I mean, where are we going? I'm doing this, you know, with my hands together, looking up at the sky uh, for divine inspiration, as dear leader used to. You know, we're going somewhere good. So I think most Kiwis understand that you've got to lie your ass off. Maybe not. Maybe not. Moving on to Andrea Vance, because this is all sort of tied in. And I had a look yesterday at her column and I sat down and her headline was, is could the Treaty of Waitangi become a casualty of populism? And there was certainly a theme around um, nationalism and populism that popped up amongst a number of the stories. Of populism, course. like it's a dirty word. Oh, I mean, you know, they're going to I mean, say... Democracy's populism. I was about to say they'll say that this will be threatening our democracy next. So she starts with, could the Treaty of Waitangi become the next casualty of populism? 
ACT is campaigning for the referendum on co-governance, the shared model of decision-making that sees the Crown and Iwi partners having equal seats at the table. The party has not defined the question it wishes the voting public to answer, but has established a position it wants to rewrite the principles of the treaty into law in the next term in Parliament. In doing so, David Seymour is riding the intense wave of national populism that has surged across other Western democracies and given a distinctly Kiwi flavour. There's two things I want to cover with this. One is, yes, it is surging across democracies. In The Spectator, it was a, last week or the week before, there was a piece about the number of uh, countries who are now starting to become more nationalistic and swing really back to the centre, to be brutally honest, because they've been so far out in the left paddock yeah. for so long. The Netherlands, interestingly enough, is looking like is going to be the next one to swing in that direction with the dissolving of their parliament in the last few days. There is definitely a shift. The last few remaining holdouts at the moment are particularly France and Germany, Venia and Denmark, but even then they cite that the current Prime Minister in Denmark, the immigration policy is decidedly centrist. That is definitely a swing. And here in New Zealand, um, you popped off a couple of nights ago and had a look at the stock co-governance meeting. Yeah. Um, so that falls into that, and you had some really interesting insights from that. Obviously, it's limited time to sum up to our um, meeting. So, you know, I'd just summarise it by saying I think Julian Batchelor is correct. Uh, he certainly uh, satisfied me through a very thorough presentation that uh, Māori did indeed cede sovereignty. He was very thorough in it. And I knew about the uh, Koi Marama Hui, which took place in 1860, I think, where, again, leaders gathered to discuss the treaty and concluded unanimously that they did indeed cede sovereignty. And that the, the thing that I hadn't been aware of were the notes from Queen Victoria via her uh, colonial secretary. They were basically saying, look, we're not going to go and uh, take land off the Māori, we will afford them the rights as British citizens and we will offer them pr protection within our empire if they willingly and in a fully informed way cede sovereignty. Uh, and if they don't, we'll pull out. The fact that the treaty is there mm. and the fact that the British didn't pull out is reasonable proof that, as well as the kohimarama, and, and, and there were a whole lot of things he put together about that. And and it may well be that, that co-governance is, as Marama Davidson insists, best for everyone. It may well be that, you know, New Zealand becoming an ethno-state, just like present Marxist student politicians, you know, the only reason Marxism hasn't worked is because they didn't do it and they care. Uh, they do it differently this time. Yeah, may, maybe, you know, an ethno-nationalist state will work, but don't piss on me and tell me it's raining you know, with all the principles of the treaty thing, because he went he went right over the origins of those with a lawyer who got in David Longy's ear, Hugh Kaffar. He went to him and said, hey, how about uh, we we sort of just re-examine the tetiriti and uh, maybe put ourselves in, in, in the mindset of those who were signing it. And so, you know, redefined all these words. And, and there was, you know, there were a few, few things. I'd, I'd encourage you. To get along, if you can't uh, face uh, making your way through a few protesters, you know you can read his uh, his book. But really, just the thoroughness with which he set it out, and the fact again, the fact that that has been so completely blocked. It's been blocked by the journalism fund, 
And, you know, when you look at the way people have to approach that, they, they're not allowed to, to allow anything other than the idea that uh, Māori entered into a um, partnership with Queen Victoria, which had never happened before, and it's not what queens do. Mm. If you want to know more about this, Paul Brennan did a fantastic interview yep. with Julian Batchelor. About June 5th. Yeah, and you go back and have a look on our replays. So if you go to realitycheck.radio and um, click on replays, uh, you can then also, if you can't find it straight away, one of the easy ways to do it is there is actually a little, what I call a hamburger link. Pop on there and you'll see podcast player. If you click on podcast player, that will actually give you all the interviews, all the replays are uh, directly back into Podbean. So you'll be able to find that interview and it is well worth doing. Before we close that, though, most of the people at the meeting had had white hair. You know, they they were older, and you know, Julian. I mean, runs through a story. You can hear it on Paul Brennan's interview. He got pushed to the edge by uh, a very aggressive series of efforts to to take some land that he'd legitimately bought. I think in order to get ordinary Maori to understand, hey, this isn't anti-Maori, but you know, something he he was. Missing from it was um, my theory, which I've run through once on this show, is that the reason all this is happening is because New Zealand hasn't dealt with its history as a slave-owning country. And, you know, what we're looking here at here, I think, is a return to traditional Māori culture, which involves, um, which involves the rangatira, uh, who have status determined by birth. You could draw a parallel between them and the elites. Then there's the tangata, the serfs, essentially. Yeah, they were sometimes in, in other tribes who were subservient to a, a local rangatira. Tutua is, is the ordinary people. So they're underneath the rangatira. And there's a proverb, kōtā te rangatira kai he kōrero, kōtā te ware he mūkai. The food of chiefs is debate. The food of commoners is inattention. And it's New Zealanders' inattention that's going to get us in the crap here. It's time to start looking at the stuff because the attitude of these Māori elites to ordinary taxpayers, I would would contend that ordinary Māori are sort of lined up here to be the tutua. You know, if you look at the attitude of these um, iwi leaders to Pākehā taxpayers, a lot of a lot of parallels with the attitudes towards the Todeka Reka or slaves. You can uh, denigrate their whakapapa due to some historical slight. You can take the fruits of their labour without reciprocity. If you have a, a child with one, then that child becomes okay due to uh, having your bloodline. And you know the uh, the ordinary Maori, the uh, tutua, they never questioned. The rangatira about their their treatment of slaves, and that's you know, and this is something Julian said. A lot of Maori have come to him, really buying into his message, uh, but then often they'll go to work alongside it, and the threats and bullying that they encounter mm. is quite something. So again, you know, hey, I might be wrong, but we should have the discussion. Yeah, and if the discussion's blocked, that makes me very suspicious. Well, Andrea continues on saying, uh, with in regards to her piece, she said, broadly, it reduces society into people versus elites, which is what we've just discussed. And Act's narrative, a left-wing and iwi elite are imposing an undemocratic system of power onto institutions that cannot be challenged. 
as we've both then just discussed, we believe it's more than institutions. It's within their own people as well. It shares key components of right-wing populism and denigrates others based on race, nationality, religion, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Now, I read that. That is a classic, isn't it just? And it's a key example where you're actually accusing somebody of something that you're doing yourself. Yeah. A key example. Well, you know, the the other, and, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about all these rich pricks. You know, a feature of pre-European Maori society was that only the chiefs owned anything. Hmm. The people underneath them didn't. And so if you're sort of wondering, how come the treaty settlements uh, trickle down makes uh, the neoliberal trickle down and look like Hooker Falls. It's traditional. Mm. I think it's really important that ordinary Maori bear in mind that one of the reasons Maori were receptive to the treaty is it gave everyone the rights of British citizenry, which meant everyone could own they could own their stuff, and that's such a motivating part of capitalism that makes it work and it makes communism fail. And that is one of the big differences be- between that, really, is that the treaty did actually empower a whole large proportion of Māori that weren't currently empowered under their existing system. So well, that in itself is, exce- I mean, it's, it's a New Zealand version of the American dream, isn't it? A lot of the slaves, uh, former slaves, went and worked for Europeans. And so... There, there are very old fractures in our society and vestiges of Maori culture that we never talk about. Never talk about how being a slave-owning culture still manifests itself today. And I think that it's a major piece of the puzzle. Hmm. She also goes on to say, this is Andrea Vance, it undercuts one of the basics of liberal democracy, the protection on the rights of minorities in favour of majoritarism. Of course, democracy also enshrines free speech, and Seymour is entitled to question the extension of co-governance from the management of rivers, lakes, forests, and public services and institutions, such as Māori wards and local councils and the creation of the Māori Health Authority or Three Waters Reform. Indeed, it falls within the role of the member of the opposition. There's also a strong argument for deciding on a clear definition of co-governance. That, I think she's got it right. There has not, I haven't seen a very clear, it is a bit woolly. there's good reason for that. They're exactly, it's Zimbabwe. It is, exactly. They don't, they, but that's the whole They don't part. want to let that count. As Willie Jackson said, oh, we want to do what they say they want to do. We just, you know, got to, you know. It's like hate speech, you know it when you see it. One of the things that got my, my sort of, nose twitchy on all of this was there was no question the issue is divisive advance says and the debate does present a risk to social cohesion but while it might be poisoning New Zealand politics it's not dominating it the most recent Ipsos issues monitoring shows that inflation cost of living crime housing health care and climate change are of the chief concerns and I thought I need to look up this Ipsos report it was fascinating this is from May of this year, which is the latest data that's available. I think it looks like they do it every six months. This is a report. It polls around 2,000 New Zealanders at what their main concerns are. I actually have done one of these polls from time to time. So number one concern, uh, inflation cost of living, currently sitting at 63%. So 63% of people are concerned around the cost of living, up from 24% in February 2021. Mm. Number two is crime, law and order, currently 40%. That's up from 16% in February 21 to the point that it did not appear in the top five. So that has every single reporting period, crime and law and order has moved up one place 
every single report. So that is trending upwards. So that is certainly something that we've seen. Housing, which was at number one, was dominating things through 2019 and early 2020, has now dropped down to 31%, down from 60% in February 21. So people are not worried about housing. Healthcare healthcare and housing are both 38, also on 31%. That has jumped up significantly since February 21 from 23%. However, Māori are only, their concern around healthcare is only 23%, which I found rather interesting. That's not what they tell us. Maybe that's why their health outcomes are not as good. Number five was climate change, and she's right, it is number five, but at 23%. But the economy is at 22%, and climate change has dropped. It's gone up since February 21, but it's dropped significantly post-cyclone Gabriel. Imagine how much it would drop if they could actually tell the truth about it. Well, and then one of the other questions, and this is where climate change comes in, one of the other questions they ask is, what are the things that you think could be concerning in five years? People claim that they believe that climate change goes up to about 30% mm. in five years. Well, of course it does, but the it's amount of... All, the new, all news is based on climate Clim- models that always overestimate. Exactly. So when you go down the list, economy 22%, poverty and inequity 16%. So is inflation in the economy? No, is inflation's it, number one. Number one. You, know, you know, I had a thought the other day. You know how sort of um, tax-free day or whatever it is, mm-hmm. is about April, isn't it? Is that, is that you know, the, the up until April, we're working to to pay our tax. I think it's moved out to May now. Yeah. Well, you know, imagine where it would move if you framed it in terms of, you know, the work you have to do to get the discretionary income to pay the tax. And then imagine how much further it would work out if you worked in inflation, which is essentially the government spending and driving down the value of money. Mm-hmm. And the value of savings, like I would, I mean, you know, you look at how little discretionary in, income people have now. Mm. I would say tax-free day is kind of pretty close to New Year. Farzan, who talks with Paul and money talk, he I yeah. think he did it with Cam. He did it with Cam. I haven't listened to the whole thing, but those were crackers, man. They're really good, and a lot of people do not understand the how money actually works. It is yeah. not as tangible. So if you uh, are really interested in terms of the financial aspects, I would definitely recommend listening to those uh, again on the replays. And he did that one he did with Cam was an absolute cracker. Going down the list, the economy number six at 22, poverty and inequity at 16, fuel and education were both the same at 11%, but education is on the ascendancy. I think the next one, I wouldn't be surprised if we see education jump up a few few, um, drops. Uh, spots, tax, transport, and personal debt at 7%, along with drug abuse and household debt. The environment and water and unemployment are only 5%. Now, three waters reform is based on the concern for water. So that, they're trying to push that reform through, but it only worries 5% of New Zealanders. Yeah. What, what, is it putting on the spot too much to ask what, um, say, your top three would be? For me, yeah. I would definitely get inflation, cost of living, crime, law and order. And for me, it'd be, for me, it's a toss-up between healthcare and education. Education, yeah. Education's a worry for me only because I've got two children in the system at the moment and they're about to transition. I mean, they've gone through high school during the COVID years and it's, let's face it, COVID at high school has been yeah. a shit show. Absolute shit show. Yeah, I mean, I... What about you? Inflation, education, race relations. 
See, race relations down here, number 4%. Yeah, I, I think uh, that needs to come up a bit because yeah. it's... A, it's it's uh... And even worse, Māori issues and overpopulation and immigration down to 2%. It's called the Ipsos, if you, IPSOS monitoring poll or monitoring report. You pop that in the Google, which is all I did. It will give you give you the answer. So that, I just thought this entire piece by Vance was rather intriguing because, again, when I looked at that report, looked at what she was saying, it falls back into that category of what they say it's about is not what it's really about. Well, you know, I've, I've been recently rereading uh, Saul Alinsky's 12 Rules for Radicals. There was a um, thing that came out, which was Saul, Saul Alinsky's um, eight uh, rules to start to create a socialist state, but I think that was um, possibly not true. I, I, I don't, I don't oh, okay. think he did, uh, did do that. But he did say this, the organiser must become schizoid politically in order to slip into becoming a true believer. Before men can act, an issue must be polarised. Men will act when they are convinced their case is 100% on the side of the angels and that the opposition are are 100% on the side of the devil. He knows there can be no action until issues are polarised to this degree, and that's what we're seeing with race Mm, relations. Definitely. And speaking of race relations, the one big thing that you and I picked out of the papers was uh, gangs. There was a lot of stuff on gangs all across the week, partially because National had announced uh, their gangs policy, which we covered, I think, was it last week or the week before? I personally think National missed the mark. Yeah. I mean, we've we've talked about this a fair bit. And a lot of the reason why I believe that they've missed the mark, as I say, is you need to look at any policy that potentially could be enacted in law and give it what I call the barn door treatment. So what then happens if the barn door were to swing back the other way? And that's the concern with uh, National's policy, is National's policy is very reliant on the definition of the word gang, because everything that they've put in place in terms of tackling gangs, if they were to then decide that gang meant anybody that disagrees with them in governance is disruptive to social fabric and cohesion, well, once you apply that definition, it then means that that is becoming very much back into a Marxist state. National's looking very purple and not very yeah, I mean, my, my thing with it, and I've, I've said this in a variety of different ways, is you've got to understand the people who are involved in it and you've got to look at them through a lens of compassion that's longer term. It can't be weak compassion, but, I mean, I, I was talking with a... Um, mongrel mob sergeant in arms uh, at one point. I think I gave him a book called The Tattooed Face. I was calling him to do that, and we had a chat. And he was talking about being a kid in his house, you know, once were warriors kind of fights. Mm. He said, oh, yeah, and I was walking around, and, oh, so that's how you kick someone. Oh, so that's how you break a bottle on someone's head. He came down the next morning, and he said, oh, and there's all these cops in the house, and one of them pointed a gun at me, and I said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm just wanting to go to school. And he went off to school and he came back and uh, he wondered where, where his brother was. These were these were early mob members, um, incredibly strong men. He said, oh, where's the meat, mum? And which was his brother's nickname. And she said, oh, uh, the meat's in jail, son. And I said, what's jail? And she said, oh, you'll find out. 
So you've got to understand. And, and he was repentant, you know. He, mm. he understood, got out of it. He still had never really fully out of it, but he, he was big and tough enough not to get a beating because he was very, very big and tough. You, you can talk to these kids who are on, on that path. I, I remember going again with uh, Genesis Portini. We went to see um, a program that Marcus and Owen Lloyd had, had, uh, were running at Whatatutu and just in, in land, and they'd taken these kids, and they'd basically, yeah, it, was, it was a Māori program that they'd designed and they never got funding for it. They couldn't get funding for it. It was for, for boys. And it was basically the theme was, you know, take the gutter out of the man. Mm. And uh, and so these kids had been tramping. They'd been learning to do stuff. And um, we had this thing we were talking to. I was talking to them after we were in the paper at the time. I said, you know, did, did you enjoy it? And and they said, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. You know, do you think it's going to keep you out of trouble? He said, oh, you know, I'll be going back and I know I'll be drinking. I know I'll be getting into fights. It's just the environment. I said, would you stay here for a year if it were possible to do so? And they all said yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's that thing of boot camps, boot camps. But it's such a bad word because it just it embodies just breaking people down and just being too hard with them. That's all these kids have known. Yeah. There is one of the things I think is missing with all of these, as you said, is actually allowing particularly young Māori, um, get, they've, they've lost that connection back with their hapu and back with their iwi. Yep. And I think that connection, not these boot camps, but take take them back to marae, have them, take them back to the land, take them back to their ancestors, and actually have that instilled in them, not what they're seeing on social media, not what they're seeing with going out in endless parties, yeah. not what they're seeing with the truancy yeah. and the drugs and all the rest I'd of it. I'd say also a bit more hikoi, a bit more gardening, a bit more fishing, a bit more carving, weaving, a bit less haka. You know, it's not something they need to practice, the looking angry and aggressive. Oh, you know, that's my own uh, personal view. But, you know, there was an article by Harry Tam and Joanna Wilkinson. Joanna Wilkinson works for research and H2R, research and consulting with a focus on marginalised communities. And, and I thought, oh, here we go. I actually found very little to disagree with what she said, particularly many of these estate care survivors, yeah, she's saying 80 to 90% of mongrel mob and black power gang whanau have been in state care. That's, the, you know, and whenever you talk to these guys, you can see the hurt still when they talk about that. And they talk about when they went off the path, when they felt marginalised by the fact that they were always going to carry that stigma with them. And she said, instead, the National Party's approach places an overemphasis on imprisonment, neglects evidence-based approaches about rehabilitation and, and reintegration, and overwhelmingly relies on the national gang list, the credibility of which has been called into question numerous times. And crucially, their approach disproportionately impacts already marginalised communities. Yeah, probably true. Saying they've got you know, H2R research, got 50 years combined experience working with gangs and hard-to-reach Māori communities. There is a place for that kind of what's easy to make political capital on by characterising it as, as soft mm. on gangs approach. But you've got to do both. Yeah. The issue I had with this, I mean, there was a lot, I don't agree with nationalist policy on gangs. I don't. I think it's it's the wrong policy. What I do have an issue with this is that if we were talking about uh, wayward Boy Scouts as being a gang, 
well then that is something entirely different. You've still got to remember that the core of the element of this gang is deeply criminal. In yeah. order to get a patch, you have to do something pretty criminal yeah. in order to earn that patch. So they do stay here. We then support these communities to implement these initiatives so they can take ownership of their own transformation. This approach inspires and provides incentives the other communities. Now, that, where is the evidence of this? So it's like the money that went to the drug program in Hawke's Bay. That got, yeah. Where are the outcomes? Mm. There was no discussion in this article. If all of, if you've got 50 years experience and you've done this, where are the outcomes? I wanted to hear about outcomes, Joanna. Yeah. Again, if, if National really wanted to do something worthwhile in the space that was still you know, could be characterised as a crackdown on yens to get New Zealand back on track. They could really stiffen up penalties for any intimidation of someone leaving a gang, make it real easy to leave a gang. So like, you yeah. get in big trouble if you try, but if you leave the gang, here's what you got to do. you got to get drug free. And, you know, it would be worth paying someone a fair amount of money to, to get on that way. And you've got to have in that uh, cycle of contemplation, when someone's ready to go, and, you know, I've, I've spoken to gang members about that. You know, they're sort of, you know, we're all for it. And then they worked out that their bros who were coming to stay were molesting their kids. Mm. You know, and at that point they realised it was bullshit, but they still had this feeling that society was against them so they kind of had nowhere to go. Yeah, You've got to have a, hey, if you want to clean up your act, if you're understanding that you're doing terrible harm, which is creating some very bad karma for you, Here's the path out. Yeah. And it's got to be in jails too. Yeah. It's like you can be in some bullshit gang in jail, making everyone's life a misery, or you can renounce it and have mm. a better time. We still have to work hard. Yeah. And this is, I think, where the church actually comes in yep. because a number of them, that is where Norm McLean and Gisman, he's done a lot of work, I know, in this space. And that is where the churches do come in. Destiny's church has done a, work, a lot of work in this space. So, but you've got to give them a parallel structure. You've got to give them a way out. It's the political football that really annoys me. Claire Trevitt, she also covered this. And this is where, again, Harry Tam, and for those that don't know, Harry Tam's, uh, well, it says here is a mongrel mob spokesman. I think Harry is a patched member of the yeah. mob. Uh, there's been criticism coming out because, of course, he's gone out on social media and he's given an open endorsement for Labour and the Greens. And he's citing here uh, mob spokesman Harry Tam. It was for gang members to vote strategically by supporting Labour candidates in marginal seats, giving the Green Party the party vote so Labour will have a governing partner. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, those are saying we don't want to make gangs a political football, but when the gangs weighed in themselves and put themselves yeah. on the playing field, well... You never want to romanticise these guys because they do things that are so ugly that you just you wouldn't want to be able to to get a hold of. There are a lot of families who are just gang families, and you know that's who they are. Again, education, but yeah, I mean there, there was uh, Ingrid Leary stumbled upon a mongrel mob election meeting in Dunedin. You know, if a politician goes and talks to gang members, I mean it's different if they say I vote for these guys, but. Well, it's a bit like Christopher Luxon saying he wouldn't go and talk to the protesters. Mm. Why not? If he did talk to gangs more, he wouldn't be talking so much crap because he'd, he'd have a better understanding. And and it drives me crazy because it's not like he's missing out on the gangs' votes by doing that. He's missing out on middle New Zealand votes, the votes of middle New Zealand who just listen to him and think, man, you're so out of touch. Mm. Mm. You're so out of touch. You, you could use a little humility with all this. 
Yeah. Because there are real kids really suffering. And for me, you know, if you knew a kid was in a house fire, you'd run, you know, 10 miles over gravel and bare feet to get them out. It's tough going to sleep in Gisborne knowing that within a two-kilometre radius of you, you've got kids just having an awful time, not just in gang houses, not just mm. in, you know, we sort of got the government always saying, oh, well, we'll take care of this. Government growing between us like a cancer. Need to talk to each other more. Moving into a completely different topic now, this was a piece that both you and I pulled out. I read it this morning, and it's from the Sunday Star Times. Uh, it's in the focus section, and the title is History in brackets always repeats. It's from uh, Kevin Norkey. How often do we hear that we live in highly divisive times? Kevin discovers that conspiracies, racism and parliamentary occupations are simply old themes dusted off and recycled. Wasn't it Mark Twain that once said that history never repeats but it often rhymes? Yeah, I think so, although Mark Twain's quotes are notoriously made Made up by other people. I mean, this would have been a great opportunity uh, for him to talk about my slavery theory, but he doesn't. He doesn't. It starts with due deference to split ends. They got it wrong. Human nature being what it is, history always repeats, just with new villains, issues and conspiracy theories. Victoria University of Wellington historian Dr Stephen Loveridge of the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies in his new book, Secret History, State Surveillance in New Zealand, 1900 to 1956, written with Richard S. Hill, will show there's nothing new under the sun. Reading Secret History, some of the more recent happenings around COVID seem weirdly familiar. When the government tried to impose conscription during World War I, there was resistance and deliberate avoidance. When it battled to combat the Great Depression, desperate protesters occupied the grounds surrounding Parliament, as anti-mandate protesters did in 2022. Just as COVID is seen as the invention aimed at imposing state control, in the 1930s, many saw worldwide economic collapse as a global lie by governments used to gain control of the masses. Loveridge sees parallels between COVID and World War I conscription too. In both cases, the public were forced to make sacrifices for their country for the sake of others. A team of 5 million in 2020 and one of just over a million going to World War I. Yeah. And, you know, then he just absolutely jumps the shark. The shirkers and conscientious objectors of World War One played a similar role to the anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists of 2021 as legitimate targets for community ire. Conscription was introduced in mid-1960s with all men aged 20 to 45 registered unless they were a non-British resident. In the COVID era, vaccine passports similarly sought to regulate movements and give assurance that the situation was being handled. It's uh, drawing a pretty long bow, I would have thought. An exceptionally long bow. Because what I couldn't get over is when he's drawing that parallel between, you know, this is the whole greater good argument, isn't Mm. it? You're doing this for the greater good. That's just it. I looked at this and I thought, well, what are you saying? I mean, if you're saying that there are parallels between COVID and the greater good, so those that sacrificed during COVID, so they sacrifice. So what was that sacrifice? Was the sacrifice the lockdowns and the personal freedoms? Was the sacrifice getting vaccinated under the vaccine mandates? And if your argument is it's the vaccinations under the vaccine mandates, well, then are those who have sacrificed themselves and were harmed, maimed and died due to those mandates, you know what are a, they going to be celebrated you know as Gallipoli? Yeah. You know what a better parallel is to draw here? What? The reason that they kept World War I going 
even when it had just been moving backwards and forth, forth and just a river of gore, is that no leaders wanted to admit that they weren't going to win and they didn't want to stop it because there'd been so much sacrifice and it was all for nothing. Mm. And so that's, you know, if you really want to draw a parallel, there it is, Stephen Loveridge. You could draw a parallel with World War I and climate change. You know, we sent ill-equipped troops over as a sacrifice to ensure continued trade, much in the same way as we're sacrificing our um, primary sector and economy, as I said, possibly $70 billion this decade, Mm. ostensibly to maintain um, trade links, but really all for nothing. Just a quixotic waste of resource that's not going to achieve anything but misery. It goes on to say both. I did take it. In both cases, there was dissident. uh, There was a dissident element that denounced the rules as illegitimate, a breach of civil liberties, or a case of government overreach. Yeah, think. And in both cases, dissidents were met with arguments that their liberties came with social responsibilities, and they were being irresponsible in the face of real danger. Really, real danger. Yeah. Let's not skim that onion, shall we? Given his time investigating state surveillance, there was a gentle tugging towards the rabbit hole. Loveridge laughs, then offers rabbit fighting tools, mental maximatosis, if you will. In some cases, you ask, how could anyone believe this? In others, I see highly flawed answers to serious questions about what's happening in the world and why. The most interesting ones are cases where you see three blind men feeling the elephant and then you go, okay, well, you've got part of it, but not all of it. You're giving an element far too much explanatory power. It helps to step outside yourself. You try to see what other people are attempting and what they're failing to do. Then you ask yourself if you're doing the same thing in your own time and realize that if you look at the past, there's nothing new here. These things keep playing out in various ways. I just looked at this and I thought, you know what? Let's go along with that and let's apply that to the march of Marxism in the 20th century and see what we get ourselves. Yeah. Again, there's this, the fact that there's not the opposing argument, like, like this guy couldn't say the things I've said and be published in the paper. Mm. Even though, as I said, I think they're a better fit for his argument. Yep. A far better fit. And, I mean, you know, then you've got, you know, talking about the Great Depression, the government was trying to refute disinformation about such random things as the establishment of the Reserve Bank, which was seen by conspiratorial anti-Semites as the culmination of the vast banker's plot to turn New Zealand into a communist slave state. It's taken a while, but... They're getting there. And they always use... Seen by conspiratorial, as can someone who's conspiring as conspiratorial, someone who's pointing out, hey, you guys are getting together and doing secret things and um, squashing any discussion. They're not conspiratorial. They're pointing out conspiratorial behaviour. And they always get that wrong. So the other thing that I find rather interesting about this, because he keeps drawing this parallel back to uh, the, era, the particularly the time uh, World War One and the time in between the World Wars and the Great Depression. And if you take his extend his theory and the fact that history does always repeat, we are now looking down the barrel of a the next Great Depression. 
economically, even though there are some economists out there that like to try and convince us that inflation is now panned out. We just and, print our way out of and, this. Yeah, and, and it's actually it's not really as bad as you might think. Yeah, get in your tiny home, eat your bugs. You'll yeah, don't worry, don't worry. If, if we get a handle on climate change, it will fix everything. We just have to print a whole lot of money and then you borrow it using your children's ability to pay tax in the future as, as uh, collateral. And then we'll send it overseas to nuclear-armed developing nations via one of the most corrupt um, market financial markets in the world to have zero effect on reducing a trace gas that's 0.04 of the atmosphere and uh, this is vital to all life. Mm. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, perfectly, perfectly. So if you actually look at it down the barrel of that, well, yeah, actually I think there will be a financial shock. And the interesting thing, of course, with that is that the conditions at the end of the Great Depression created the recipe for what was uh, the rise of fascism across Europe and then into the Second World War. Mm. That is something that we have to be very mindful of. I mean, are those ingredients now currently being set with the, the war going on in Europe? I don't know. What I do agree with is, yes, history does always repeat, but I just find it really interesting mm. at the lens that he's looked at it in, if we go back to our matrix analogy at the beginning, uh, we're looking at this sitting on the Nebuchadnezzar outside of the matrix going, you know, this is where this is going. He's sitting in there in the restaurant writing his notes and writing a story while he's eating his imaginary steak. That's what I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's stuff like the use of fluoride in public drinking water as, as, an, as an, a, an example of wrong thing. And I remember old John Ansell asked uh, Christopher Luxon at a meeting, if you could prove to your own satisfaction that fluoride in drinking water lowered the intelligence of young people, uh, that there were no principles of the treaty involving a partnership, that there wasn't significant anthropogenic climate change, et cetera, there's one more point he made. If you could establish those things to your satisfaction, would you change your policies? And Christopher Luxon just said, no. Mm. And, and for me, that was very, very telling because it's the wrong answer. Hmm. If the facts change, you've got to change your mind. Yeah. And you've got to be open to it. And, and as I've always said, you know, I'm not arguing that what I think is absolutely correct. Well, obviously, I think it, uh, I, I think it is, but um, and I'm doing my best that it is. I'm arguing, hey, we've got to have the discussion. And if the discussion is getting closed down, we're in big trouble mm. and we've got to start it up. Mm. And it's not hateful, it's just... How it is. I thought it was a, an interesting article. I think the book will be interesting. I don't necessarily agree with the, how they drew the conclusions, but a lot of the parallels there I thought were actually really, really fascinating. Did you? Yeah, I just, I did. I found it fascinating. I found it slightly sad and disturbing at the same time, but, but it's just so amazing how you can both be, it's like going into an art gallery, isn't it? And looking at a painting and you can both be looking at exactly the same painting on the wall and what one person perceives and what another person perceives are completely different. And this to me is an example of that. Yeah. I mean, that's what it always uh, gives me the shits about student politicians and, and young politicians. I think back to being in my early twenties and I just think, no, no, <laughs> you're, you're no, Right. Have you got anything else you want to cover? I've got one nice little bit. We've got so much paper that we haven't gotten to, but I can't believe I'm looking at the time and time's running away on us. And I don't, we had some feedback, Martin. 
Oh, have we? Let's we have, have that. Let's have some feedback. Right, feedback, feedback from the inbox. Hi, Marie. Heard from a working registered nurse yesterday, and the health department found out about how to fund RNs back who had lost their registrations, like myself. There's tons of RNs out there who whose registrations have expired, and the re-registration is currently a six-month course. Watch the space. So that will be really. I know a lot did let them lapse. This was uh, actually a correction too from Michelle. Uh, Michelle, I did say that anaesthetic techs, to my knowledge, weren't trained in New Zealand. Uh, they have been now are being trained in New Zealand. No. So thanks, Michelle, for letting me know it's that. Still true that they're very antisocial. But again, you said that, not I. I do know from very social anaesthetic techs. Uh, I was trained here, but mandated out um, because they didn't need me. I know, Michelle, that is insane, right? I mean, how many surgeries have been cancelled in this country because of an anaesthetic tech shortage? It's just, it's mind-blowing. Uh, Diane said, Jerry Brownlee was recently asked at a national meeting why the unvaxxed nurses aren't being re-employed. He said it, he wasn't aware they weren't allowed back. He said, that's all been dropped. Hmm. then why is the health industry still mandating, i.e. polytech hospitals, and if the government don't require it? I know the Nursing Association won't allow unvaxxed back and, what, and on what grounds. And you're right, and there's a number of uh, businesses that are still uh, requiring a vaccine mandate. So that all they've done is deferred the responsibility of the mandate onto All that we're doing is keeping World War One going because we don't want to admit that it was crap. And we knew it was crap even when we were starting out because they knew what they knew it didn't stop transmission. They knew it didn't stop infection. No, exactly. So they've got to keep pushing it because they don't want to say, you know what? I was wrong about that. Oh, definitely. Again, from the text machine, I reckon Pfizer made it contractual that New Zealand get rid of all natural products. Who knows what power they have over us now? Oh, you'll like this one, Marty. This one's Ooh. right up your alley. Uh, again, from the text machine, the Rockefeller Foundation is investigating $20 million into researching the medical use of food, which is where I think the therapeutic goods bill comes from. Have right. you, yes, because I know that you... Yeah, well, yeah. where does it come from? Exactly. Where's the urgency for it? Because you notice it didn't even appear on uh, the list of concerns. It didn't even no, make 1%, did it? did not even make 1%. So a huge thank you for all of that feedback. If you want to send us feedback, uh, inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. 2057 is the text number. And it's great because we don't always get it right. And uh, sometimes our information is out of date. And so if you've got, or if you've got an opposing uh, point of view, send that along as well. Hey, I do have one little good news story, though, to finish oh. off with. I know. First ever female, one young Palmer of the year. Yeah, I saw that. What a oh, nice, what yes. a pleasant lady she was, too. She was. Emma Paul from the Waikato Bay of Plenty Contestant was crowned champion award in Timaru a couple of nights ago. Left it absolutely buzzing in the 55th edition of the awards. Uh, she's totally overwhelmed. She had to go through, all the finalists had to go through three days of tough competition, and she came out on top. Alongside the title and the trophy and the famous cloak of knowledge, Paul also received $90,000 in prizes. I'm really thrilled for Emma, the most prestigious farming award in the country, says Chief Executive Linda Coppersmith. So congratulations. Congratulations, um, Emma. To Emma. I just thought that was very good news and very well-deserved. Apparently she... Uh, she, you know, absolute kicks and butt against the boys. So Cousin managing the family farm. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if she took out uh, that one day. She's mm-hmm. into it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been fun. Yeah, Doing great. It yes. Yeah. So we'll be on TV before we know it, maybe. Oh, yeah, no, this is definitely my mug's not made for the screen, but there you go. Let me sort that out. <laughs> 
Hey, the Don't Disappear Woke Word of the Week is still coming here on Counterculture. And again, if you have any feedback you want to send us, 2057 is the text number. Have a great week, everyone. It's time for the Vocabulary Word of the Week. The vocabulary in the Woke Word of the Week is where we have a look at words, phrases and language that make up the lexicon often deployed by those in critical social justice. Today's Word of the Week, de-banking. This is a brand spanking new word into the vocabulary. The alleged practice by traditional banks of suspending the accounts of individuals or businesses due to their political or ideological beliefs. Debanking is a particularly pernicious cancel culture trend, which seems to be gaining traction, most recently with the debanking of Nigel Farage in the UK. But it's also affected Katie Hopkins, the trigonometry team, just to name a few. This is cancel cultists using the banking system to attack those they do not like, and it's a dangerous precedent to set. It reduces individuals' freedoms to earn and to transact. Yet another reason why cash is so important to keep alive in today's current climate. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture on the road. Keep the feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text. Send your comment to 2057. Peter Williams is up here next on Reality Check with his ponderings and even more great music. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky. Reality Check Radio.